this night, we do what we want. We make our own rules. This is our night. This is our show. On this night, we rise. This is the bleeding edge of science, technology, and ethics. This is... Pollution. Unwilling to submit. We learn all that is learnable. Tonight, power shifts. Tonight, we raise our instruments of anarchy. Peaceful coexistence, encryption, software, secure devices, and our minds. Tonight, we are unbound by law. It's time for Sovereign Tech. And now your host, the golden stallion of the tech world, the rated R radio star, Brian Sovereign. Tomorrow, Savzu, the rated R radio star, ready to go with another Sovereign Tech, baby. Oh, yes, you know nothing but the best. Nobody does it better. Call it all, because the hottest tech show in the world is on right now. Woo! Just coming off of the heels of an amazing episode that was really stunned much of the world about steam it and calling bullshit on the whole thing. Ooh, baby. And I've had, it's been a whirlwind of a week. I've been asked to be on multitude, a multitude of shows saying, hey, Stallion, we got to have you on. We got to talk about this. What is causing all this? And of course, they come to the best. Woo. Man, now. <laughs> oh, boy. You know, I tell you, <laughs> I'm my own worst critic. I got to say, if I had any idea how much, how listened to last week's episode, episode 187 was going to be, uh, you know, and how much people were going to look to me to explain steam it to them, boy, I would have spent a lot more time on it. I, I really would have in the show, but I had no idea. So, uh, you know, I don't think it was a bad episode by any means, but I'm like, well, you know, I didn't go into all the depths. I didn't cover everything. I mean, I spent all of what, maybe 15 minutes on this gigantic, incredibly and uh, notoriously and perhaps, you know, much to detriment uh, complex subject that is steam and steam it. Uh, but if you want to, if you want to hear me go into far more depth and actually respond to some of my critics, you got to sign up for the Sovereign Tech Patreon, okay? You go to patreon.com slash Sovereign Tech. Of course, there's a link in the show notes for this episode to find it. You can find it if you go to, just type in patreon.sovereigntech.com. That'll take you there too. Or, or .zog.ninja, that'll take you there. Donate.zog.ninja, that'll take you there. That's also where you can uh, donate with Bitcoin, you know, some real money. Uh, and anyway, if I if I knew, I, I would have done that, but whatever. I put out the Patreon episode. It's three hours long. I included uh, some of my mentions and some of my appearances on other shows in the past week, uh, including being on Free Talk Live. Once again, it had been some time. Of course, I was a co-host on Free Talk Live for 
uh, well, every Sunday for about two years, maybe maybe a little over two years. And I actually used the first chair, which not everybody gets the opportunity to do that, which meant that I ran the whole damn thing, uh, you know, with with the the other co-host, of course, the lovely and hyper intelligent Dr. Stephanie Murphy and often Mark Edge. Uh, it was always a great time. So it was great to be back on there. I, I really I am honored that Ian Freeman uh, asked me to be on. Um, it was it was really great and getting to hang out with Daryl Perry and all that, you know, and, uh, and, and the other hosts, it was just, it was, uh, it was something else. It was an interesting episode. It was on Monday. It was August 8th. If you want to hear the whole thing, you can go find that, uh, freetalklive.com. Look for the August 8th episode, uh, that I was on. But of course you could also just become a Patreon subscriber to Sovereign Tech. It's as little as a dollar a month. You don't have to do more than that. It's a pay what you want model. I think that's the economy of the future. I've said that for years on Sovereign Tech, and I'm delivering it to you because I have total control over Sovereign Tech. Some other things I do, I don't always, you know, I, I don't always go pay what you want because of the platforms that it gets put out on there. But I have total control when it comes to Sovereign Tech, baby, and I always will. Woo! So for just as little as a dollar a month, I mean, if you want to do more, you know, some people do five, some do 10, some people do 15. Please, by all means, do that. You know, I'm honored. Thank you. But I make sure you're getting value for value. There are so many episodes up now. There's, I think there's over seven episodes now. Uh, that you, you, you'll get instant access to. I do a Q and a every week on the Patreon, uh, that that's only available to patrons. Um, if you really, really want to, you know, become a subscriber and, uh, you know, and do so outside of Patreon, send me an email. Okay. Go to contact.zog.ninja. There's the contact form, you know, l- let me know and I'll try and get something set up with you. Uh, I do have a couple people that do that. Okay. And we do have the goals where if we can get up to 500 a month, I will do, uh, another episode of Sovereign Tech every week, a full official episode that everybody can get access to for free. Um, so anyway, it'd be great. You know, the more people that sign up, there's more people signing up every single week, nearly every day. It feels like that, that more people have been signing up since I, uh, you know, really, uh, ramped up the Patreon page, even though I've had it for a while, I wasn't doing Patreon and content or Patreon only content, uh, up until recently. So if you want to get access to that, there's a lot of it. Uh, there's the, all the Q and a episodes, uh, you know, that you're not going to hear. I mean, and those Q and a episodes, let me tell you, so, like I said, some people have been saying some of those are some of the best episodes I've ever done. Uh, and often enough, I can only get to two or three questions and I'll spend over an hour. I'd like to spend less, but the questions, you know, I'm well, look, when my mouth starts running, <laughs> it's hard for it to stop until it goes off the rails and somebody tells me to shut up or, <laughs> you know, but well, actually most people don't tell me to do that. They just keep listening. Thank you. But regardless, you know, th- those are out there. I spend a lot of time getting in, you know, really knee deep in, uh, into so many, so many subjects as to where oftentimes on sovereign tech, we can only get ankle deep. And then, you know, you kind of have to go in the show notes and maybe go a little further out, but we have this week in this week's episode of sovereign tech, we have so much to cover here, uh, in this episode, a lot of big subjects, some fun, some not so fun. Uh, and I want, I want to get into them cause I want to take the time with them. Uh, especially our lead story, I think has, has a lot of interesting turns we'll say, uh, because it's, it's a fun story. It's not a negative one. This is actually a positive outlook on the future, I think to some degree. Uh, so I want to be able to do that, but there's, there's, it, there's a good chunk of reading for it. So I want to be able to get into that. So why don't we get right into the random access again? If you want to hear more about my thoughts on steam it, uh, you can you know, join Patreon, join Sovereign Tech, or, you know, donate to Sovereign Tech on Patreon, become a Sovereign Tech patron, as they call it. Uh, and when you do that, then you'll be able to listen to, like I said, it ended up shaping up to be all of like three hours. Uh, and over half that is unique content. 
uh, as you know, or is, is content only for that episode uh, as to where, you know, some of it is from other, other shows. Uh, so please do get your hands on that. Okay. Love to have you on board as a sovereign tech patron. You know, in fact, I've been even, I've been toying cause I, I just call it sovereign tech subscriber content or sovereign tech subscribers. I, I'm kind of, or, you know, if it's on Patreon, you know, the term used as patrons um, I've been thinking about, creating like a name, you know, I know there's a sovereignty, there's the sovereign Rangers. People have thought of that. I don't want to go with that one as much as I, I love the power Rangers. And I mean that I really do. Uh, I don't know how I'm feeling about the new movie coming out, but I, anyway, I'm enjoying the comic from boom studios. I'll tell you that. Holy fuck. That's good shit. Um, but I, you know, I, I was toying with a name and it's the sovereign tech tortoise club. <laughs> I, I know you're, you're like, what the hell? Well, I'll tell you why I'm thinking about that. And you can let me know. You can email me and let me let me know what you think of that name. I would actually be very interested to hear that, to hear what you think about it. Uh, the Sovereign Tech Tortoise Club. Yeah, it, it's kind of a fun, you know, kind of cheeky name, uh, I think. But at the same time, the tortoise, I think, is actually a great symbol for personal freedom and for, you know, a lot of my outlook on liberty. I know in, you know, in New Hampshire, uh, the Free State Project has the symbol of the uh, of the porcupine. And, you know, the idea is, is that, well, the porcupine is kind of a native animal. And also, you know, if you, if you step on the porcupine, uh, it, you know, as long as you don't mess with the porcupine, you're completely left alone. But if you happen to mess with the porcupine, you'll get the quills. Um, and that, I, I get that, you know, and, and it's a play on the rattlesnake, you know, from the Gadsden flag and all this. And I understand that. Um, uh, but, for me, like, I like the tortoise because what does the tortoise do? The tortoise, when you step on it or when you go after it, it doesn't start shooting quills at you. All it does is it, it goes into its shell like a giant shield and just says, fuck you, you know, do, do your worst. Cause it's not going to matter to me. And I, I mean, I really, really, I, I more like that symbology, you know, not that you're going to meet force with force, but that you're, you're just You know, you're just going to make it make force inconsequential, make it meaningless by just going into the shield, you know, into this like shield mode. And so I've always, and, and this is an old argument. I think even before I was doing sovereign tech, I said, I, I actually, when I cared about the free state project more, uh, you know, as an organization or as a thing, um, not that I, you know, hold ill will towards it or anything now, but, um, I, I actually was kind of petitioning, Hey, could we change the symbol to a tortoise? I, I, I think that that, that fits a, a little bit better. And, you know, I mean, turtles in general, especially the more peaceful turtles. Like, I, you know, I love the, the sea turtles. Remember the sea turtles from finding Nemo. I thought those things were so awesome. Just they're, you know, they're really talk about laissez faire, laissez faire and everything, you know, they're just like, yeah, man, just go with the waves. You know, <laughs> it was, I, they're really cool. And of course they live exceptionally long. So do tortoises. I mean, you know, they, they have really, really long lives. Uh, and I would argue that, Sea turtles and, and tortoises, perhaps part of the reason they have such long lives is that they're, I mean, well, I'm having fun with the, with, with the analogy and the concept, but they're peaceful creatures, you know, <laughs> they, you know, they, they just totally peaceful. They don't even like fight back. They just, they shield up and they move on. So, you know, it, I, I think there's, there's some great analogies inside of those creatures, uh, because I am all about nonviolence, you know, all the way. I'm not, I'm not against self-defense, but I am 100% on the, on the idea that, you know, force with force against force just isn't going to fly. Nonviolence is absolutely the way that's been a mantra of sovereign tech since episode one, four years ago. Uh, anyway, all right. <laughs> I got into a side subject and I said, I didn't want to do that. Let's get into the random access. Cause we got some shit to cover here and here. Woo. 
here, <laughs> baby, is, is some exciting news. And I, there's a link in the show notes for this for, for TechCrunch because they have uh, within the TechCrunch story, they explain everything very well. And, uh, and they, they were very respectful to, to the person that they interviewed. Uh, and they, they have all the pertinent links uh, there. So I thought it was the best place to, to send Sovereign Tech listeners to. Uh, and what TechCrunch did is they interviewed David Irvine. Why? Who's David Irvine, of course? The head uh, of MadeSafe. It's because MadeSafe or Project or, you know, the Safe Network, as it's called, is now in alpha release, full public alpha release. Woo! Baby, can you get enough of that? <laughs> oh, man. We've been waiting for this. I was even, I'll admit it, I was getting a little concerned. I was just like, where is this baby? And there it is, the alpha. Now, let's be clear here, okay? As exciting as this is, I, I guarantee you, throughout its stages, I will, you know, I am going to look upon it with a critical eye and right now it is you know this is alpha software they're being very very clear about that that it's alpha and i think that's fine um TechCrunch did a great write-up on it like i i was in awe at how understanding TechCrunch was and that they really weren't uh like they didn't insult in any way uh it, it was it was a fantastic write-up i thought um and they explained you know they, they break down everything very well even into a degree of layman's terms um but understand you're not going to be able to like mine safe coin right now you're not going to be able to be a farmer all that stuff uh you know the vault system is i think i think right now made safe's running it through uh through like a digital ocean uh through digital ocean which is uh a great company, but they're using their droplets to do a lot of that. Um, so, you know, it's not full featured. I, I, I haven't, I haven't installed it and messed with it yet myself. This literally just came out yesterday. That being Friday, uh, August 12th, that's going to be a day to, to go down in, uh, in, in beautiful infamy, <laughs> in my opinion, infamy is a good thing when, you know, when you're in a world run by the state, infamy is a great thing. Um, but, uh, yeah, so I haven't had the, really the full chance to mess with it, but as I understand, you can upload uh, or you can do blog posts. You can do you can upload some degree of content. You can't. I mean, there, there's limitations on a lot of that, but this is an alpha again. Remember, it's an alpha. But the beauty here is, is that in my opinion, far better. I did take a look, you know, a, a quick look. Far better than the alpha releases of any kind for Ethereum. This actually has a super user friendly look to it. Super user friendly. Uh, and that is so key. That is so important. And some, I mean, read that TechCrunch article because some of the stuff that, uh, you know, that David Irvine lays out in that are, are just, they are precepts of everything we talk about on Sovereign Tech. You know, the idea that privacy and security have to be baked right in. They cannot be an add-on. It cannot be a plug-in, you know, like it is for the internet. It needs to be right in the program. And they made sure that that statement went out there and they highlighted that. Um, there's, a, there's just a whole slew of great, of great quotes in that. Uh, and also, even David Irvine saying, look, when it's out there, it's got to be out there and we need it to be done. And, and that really, you know, to me, that very much, uh, uh, you know, appeals to, you know, when it's a full release that like, cause I, I constantly complain about, um, you know, the bugs and people paying for beta tests and all this, you know, all this crazy shit, the, the whole, you know, the way that, that the, the alpha testing and beta testing usually works is pretty ugly. Um, but you know, his ideas is that, you know, when it's time to start making money or at least how I read it, uh, you know, how I understood it or how I interpreted it myself was that, you know, we're not going to have you making money on this until it's really ready to go. And there's not going to be any issues, which again, with Ethereum, when the alpha software came out for Ethereum, all right. And even the beta software, and if there's any kind of full release, I mean, it was so ugly. You were dealing with a, with a CLI, you know, it was a command line interface. 
that you were fucking with. Are you kidding me? And you're going to tell people this is going to change the world? Baby, deliver me a great looking piece of software before. Not that I mind the cleave, uh, please. But that really should be. If it's something for everybody, that should be optional. So Made Safe is making sure this baby's ready to go and it's going to be something for everybody. I love it. I am. I Man, I was excited to see that. Made my fucking day. Especially after all the bullshit that I had to, you know, that, that I saw with Steam. It, it was amazing. Uh, you know, to, to have, have such a, a classy, in my opinion, alpha release uh, happen here. So anyway, do, do check that out. If you look in the appendix of the show notes for episode 188 of Sovereign Tech, it's there. It's on. Woo! I, I said it on, on, on various social media. I said, in the mortal words of Shang Tsung, it has begun. Right. Remember that classic Paul W.S. Uh, Mortal Kombat movie from 1995. I love that movie. Love Paul W.S. Anderson, too. Second favorite director of all time. Woo. Resident Evil. All right. <laughs> Which I saw that, too. Oh, man. OK, so I'm I'm a big fan of the Resident Evil movies. I'm also a big fan of the video games. I don't I actually really hate zombie media in general. I mean, not all of it. There's a there's a couple of interesting, uh, you know, zombie media things out there. Survivor Max and some of that. If you never checked out Survivor Max, you need to do that. Um but, uh, you know, I, I generally don't like, I don't like walking dead. I don't, you know, I'm not that big a fan of Romero's work, even though I, I respect, uh, you know, how, how, uh, how quintessential it is. Um, but the resident evil movies were so ever since high school. And that's amazing to consider, like, you know, there's been five, six movies, <laughs> or, you know, however many, uh, that, uh, that I've been watching since high school. <laughs> that's re- that's remarkable to me. And, you know, Mila Jovovich has just been doing great. Uh, I don't think people really respect just how, like here is this incredibly strong female character that has been around for, you know, over 10 years doing these movies. Uh, I mean, that that's remarkable at a time when there really weren't a lot of strong, you know, the only other strong female character I think that you could actually look at by, at you know, uh, pre the release of the first Resident Evil was, uh, you know, maybe Sarah Connor, right, from Terminator, Linda Hamilton, hot as hell, whew. Uh, so, you know, I mean, there's a lot of respect. I think that the resident evil movies really deserve. I know they're cheesy. I know they're campy. I like that. Uh, that that's probably why I like them as compared to other zombie media that I really don't care for. Cause it's just too damn serious. Um, but anyway, the new, the new one's coming out resident evil. The final chapter is coming out January, 2017. Now there was a trailer released in America that played guns and roses on it. And I look, I love guns and roses really. Uh, but it didn't work. It, it was, it was a little bit rough, but if you watch the international version of the trailer, the movie looks great because they get rid of the funny editing of the trailer with, uh, you know, with the guns and roses song, it's not in it. Uh, so do check out the international version of that trailer. And I cannot, I will be reviewing the shit out of that. And we got a movie review later on in this episode as well at, at during the climax, but I won't spoil it for you here. I'll spoil it for you then. Woo. <laughs> Oh, man, I'm just so excited about this made safe alpha. This is fantastic news. Here we go. Give me the Internet I've always wanted, please. Yes. Uh, And you better believe. And in fact, also, you know, something else in the the TechCrunch article, uh, they did mention like David Irvine was saying, okay, we need to get more developers on board. You know, they are going to be doing a crowdfunding. Um, and the, the, the stated purpose of this crowdfunding, I largely agree with, cause they're talking about the, the different types of people they need to get on board. They need to get, you know, community outreach done. That is so fucking key that, you know what, you know what, how I interpreted that, that's saying we need to get some, you know, some marketing, you know, ethical marketing out there. We need to get people involved to get people on board with this. Okay. And that's, that's how you do it. That's how something gets taken seriously. 
okay, is by is by really reaching out, spending money and and be open and honest that you're going to put the money in that place. I think that's great. So, yeah, let's do that outreach. I think that's awesome. Um, and, I, and I'll probably have David Irvine, you know, it, maybe when they get to Alpha 2 or Alpha 3, because right now this is Alpha 1, maybe when they get to Beta, I will certainly, uh, well, I'll be keeping tabs on this and I'll get the, you know, I'll get the people that need to be on the show. They'll be on. <laughs> I guarantee it. Uh, anyway. Let's get on to some other news here. Uh, Walmart. This is pretty interesting. Walmart bought uh, this week for $3 billion jet.com. Now, if you don't know what jet.com was, jet.com was trying to be, came out maybe a year, year and a half ago, maybe two years. It was trying to be a competitor for Amazon, uh, but it was a little weird. It was kind of like, it was a little more uh, uh, upfront in the fact that to take advantage of the website to the, of the shopping experience. And they said that they would beat any price anywhere, including Amazon's. Uh, you had to pay a fee up front. I think it was like $50. Now, you know, that's just the retail tax. That's the same thing that Amazon does with, uh, you know, with Amazon Prime. Same thing Costco does, that BJ's does and all that. So, you know, there's nothing like inherently strange about that. But of course, understand you are paying them for the privilege to shop there. And that's, that's kind of weird, right? <laughs> I mean, you know, it's even weird. Like, I understand, you know, the idea of membership and all this different shit. I mean, $50 I thought was a little steep and it didn't work out for them actually, because I think they, they changed it up to where there wasn't an upfront charge. Uh, but anyway, it was the brainchild of Mark Laurie. Now, Mark Laurie is the key here. I think, you know, if you want to know what does this all mean, I'm going to explain it to you quick, you know, why it's even important to bring up jet.com getting bought out by Walmart. Uh, and perhaps $3 billion is a song considering what they've acquired here. Um, not that jet.com was that was necessarily that successful yet. Of course, you know, it's only been around, it's been around for a short period of time, uh, in the retail, especially when you consider, you know, the retail space, you know, a year, two years even is a really, really small period of time. Um, but well, you know, Mark Laurie is the, this is his brainchild. Now, Mark Laurie used to work for it. Well, well, Mark Laurie first created diapers.com. If anybody remembers that. One of the most popular sites on the internet it was one of Amazon's first buyouts. One of the first thing that Amazon bought out. Uh, and then Mark Laurie ended up working for Amazon for a while. Then Mark Laurie leaves Amazon at one point and he goes and founds jet.com. Now one could argue that a lot of the brilliance in, uh, especially if you read like the everything store and you know, in some of those, uh, the books that have to do with the history of, uh, of Amazon, that's really the main one. Um, Mark Laurie, I think has, you know, had his, he was a smart guy at Amazon and might be heavily credited for some of their success. You know, I don't want to take anything away from Jeff Bezos, but Mark Laurie was definitely a very helpful acquisition uh, for them. And there's the, you know, I mean, there's the possibility that what Amazon did back then when they bought out diapers.com was really, they just wanted to acquire Mark Laurie. And that's what I think Walmart really wanted is they wanted Mark Laurie. Uh, because he is a smart guy, especially when it comes to online retail. I mean, he is one, he, he's one of the best, if not the best. Uh, and I, I, I think that that was really Walmart scooping them up because as we've talked about for years on Sovereign Tech, um, Amazon is eating the world. In fact, that's a direct quote from uh, This Week in Tech, uh, one of my favorite podcasts. Last week, their epi the episode of, of This Week in Tech, uh, this is, you know, of course, Sovereign Tech is recorded. This is being recorded on August 13th. So, you know, go back to last Sunday, uh, 2016. They, Om Malik, a lot of bright guys were on the show, Leo Laporte, and they were all saying what I've been saying for over, for pretty much three years now on Sovereign Tech is that Amazon is the company. They are the tech giant. You don't understand. Apple's meaningless. Google's meaningless. Facebook is even meaningless. All, you know, Microsoft's meaningless. All these different 
Amazon is the one. And the direct quote was Amazon is eating everything. That's what, you know, some very smart guys, including O'Malley, uh, you know, who's also, you know, a well-known angel investor and journalist. Uh, and of course, Leo Laporte and everybody else that was on there, they were all saying it. Now everybody's saying it. Folks, if you lived, you know, if you're in sovereign tech land for the past few years, you already knew this. You knew this a long, long time ago, what everybody's just starting to say now, including Ben Thompson, the stratechery and all that. Okay. So now who is Walmart's main competition? Um, I mentioned two companies that have been, that are Walmart's really their only competition or not, not Walmart, but Amazon's only competition. One is Uber. Uber is, is setting themselves up, uh, to be Amazon's competition. Okay. Now I, I'm just talking about in the American stage on the global stage, you know, things, things change a little bit, especially when you get to China. Okay. But Uber is setting themselves up to be a competitor with Amazon. Okay. Because again, what's Amazon's plan to become a man or my opinion it's to become a monopsony. Okay. They want to be the sole distributor, not a monopoly where they're the sole producer, but where they are the sole distributor. Uber is at the end of the day, looking, I think, to get into that distribution business, uh, big time. Okay. And there's a lot of evidence for that. And that's, that's their big push behind automated vehicles. Um, the other competitor is Walmart. Okay. Walmart, you know, amazon.com and walmart.com. And then of course, Walmart in the retail space. I mean, those are like the most visited shopping, uh, uh, uh platforms I'll call them, uh, and the, it really in the world, but more so, you know, in America. Uh, and so that, you know, obviously Walmart is in direct comp competition with Amazon and vice versa. Uh, they are the giants. And so Walmart buying out jet.com again, I don't think that, you know, jet.com didn't even match what walmart.com does in a day, not even close. So I really think this isn't about acquiring jet.com. Uh, maybe some aspects of, you know, jets, you know, business model or API or something, but, or, you know, maybe some, I don't know what they have for APIs, but, um, but really, I think this is all about getting Mark Laurie so that Walmart can take on, you know, really take on Jeff Bezos with his, you know, against his own protege, perhaps, or his equal. You know, I, I think that's the I mean, this is a really this jet.com deal is a big fucking deal. You are you are watching, uh, you know, uh, uh, <laughs> I was going to say the thriller in Manila, but I mean, <laughs> I mean you're you're really seeing uh, uh, qu quite quite uh, quite the battle going on here, I think, between two massive companies. And Amazon, like I said, is the tech giant that matters. Uh, it's really the only one. Uh, very, very interesting. So, uh, so there you have it. Uh, that, that's, that's the jet.com deal. What else we got here? Uh, speaking of Amazon, this is interesting. This is showing a little more of their, their, what I call the Amazon world domination tour that we've been talking about for years and been keeping track of, uh, Twitch, which is the very, very, very popular, uh, uh game streaming and, uh, you know, video streaming platform, uh, that Amazon, Amazon bought out, bought out like a year ago or so. And, you know, everybody's like, well, what are they going to do with it? Largely they've been leaving it alone, just letting people create their content, do their game streaming and all that stuff on there that everybody see, or that a lot of people seem to enjoy now for the first time, uh, the tick there's the, the there's the the pilot being made for the tick and there's other Amazon pilots all for Amazon video, you know, Amazon prime video, uh, that will be streaming on Twitch. And here it is folks, you know, this is, this is where Amazon takes on now with Amazon prime video itself, they're taking on Netflix with original content and the shows are very popular and all that with Twitch. Now, you know, having this, this conjunction with a very pot with, with shows very popular, say on, on Amazon prime video, our take is going to take on YouTube straight up. Uh, and so, th I mean, this is, th this is major. Okay. This is a major, major move for them to do that, to turn Twitch into their YouTube, effectively their YouTube, and then to have Amazon prime, uh, video as their Netflix. 
I mean, they're, you know, people don't, don't see it coming yet, but, but it, or some are starting to see it, like we mentioned, but it's a little too late. All these, all these pieces are getting put into place and oh man. So anyway, uh, though I will admit there's another contender, I think coming in, in the whole game streaming space anyway, uh, even though really the story I mentioned about the tick being aired on Twitch is more about the fact that that is turning into a YouTube competitor. Uh, but Microsoft is also making plays in this video content thing. Now they released like some kind of business version of their own version of YouTube. I forget the name of it off the top of my head, uh, or I can't think of it off the top of my head, but they created that. Uh, for businesses particularly, which of course right now their concentration is, is take over the enterprise space, which I, I understand that. And it's not the final frontier. We're talking about businesses. Okay. <laughs> uh, and in that, then they bought out a uh, beam, which is beam is a service not heavily used right now, but it's growing. And I think it's probably going to grow a whole hell of a lot now that it has Microsoft owning it. Uh, but they bought it for a really, I forget what the exact price was, but it was really, really cheap in comparison to a lot of the acquisitions you hear about today, you know, that are regularly in the billions of dollars, kind of like jet.com with Walmart, um, or, you know, Walmart with jet.com, I should say. And beam, I guess beam, what it does is I've never used it, but apparently it's really good at, at live streaming more directly and allowing for more interaction uh, between the people watching the live stream of gameplay, uh, you know, and the person doing the game playing and, and interacting with the game and everything like it's, it gets really integrated. Uh, this is a huge move because, of course, Microsoft has the Xbox one or the Xbox platform in general, which, again, now are just, you know, uh, 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 simplified Windows 10 machines. Uh, but you have Project Scorpio that we talked about coming out Uh later well that'll be in 2017 you have the xbox one s you have all these things and then you have you know the the uwp platform on windows 10 so you you know microsoft has a major gaming platform that is popular both ends of those are popular window and it's i mean it's all windows 10 really now again even with xbox uh and so plug in beam directly into make it windows 10 exclusive or xbox exclusive and oh baby what an experience you have you know, because even like PlayStation 4, sure, PlayStation 4 has a lot of social components built into it, uh, including the use of Twitch. But that's the problem is it's not Sony's own, own you know, in-house uh, system being used there. They are running off of Amazon. And so effectively, if live streaming is such a key component of the social aspect of gaming, um, you know, Amazon holds the keys, perhaps, to the PlayStation 4 success. Now, I mean, the PS4 has great games going for it. You know, there's no, no doubt about that. And they're they're going more towards VR and all this. Um, so I'm not saying Sony's necessarily in trouble, but let's understand that there are serious advantages to owning your own game streaming service when you also have a console and PC gaming business going for you, which Microsoft does. Uh, so I thought that was, a, that was actually an interesting, well, I mean, just a quick side note there on all that. But speaking of Windows 10, we're rolling right through all this. Speaking of Windows 10, the anniversary update. Uh, last, last week, or maybe it was the week before, I said it's like, yeah, you know, this is largely coming out with no flaws. Well, I, apparently I was wrong. I've been hearing lots and people having tons and tons of flaws um, with their, when, when Windows 10 up, uh, updated to the anniversary update, uh, some people lost their Wi-Fi. I mean, like there, there's, there's been quite a few different issues, but then there's people who said they've had zero issues, no matter how many machines they installed it on. The only issue I had, and I mentioned this last week was that, uh, Cortana, um, disappeared from, from my, you know, from my desktop. Uh, not that I really use Cortana. I was just testing it out, but I, it's important to bring up because, this is a now, as I understand it, it's a known issue at, at Microsoft that on a lot of machines that did update to the anniversary uh, edition of Windows 10, 
they they did lose Cortana. It's just gone. Uh, and that's so central, like, it's just the interface, of course, you know, the meat, you know, the meat and potatoes, uh, of, uh, or the bones of, um, of Cortana is still there because it's baked right into windows 10. Um, but yeah, so this is a problem and it has yet to be resolved for me. So if you're missing Cortana, it's not just you. A lot of people are having that issue. So not as rosy a rollout as I initially had thought that it was, um, People have been talking about that. I guess uh, McAfee antivirus, nothing to do with John, um, ha- also has been having issues with the anniversary update. It won't work. There's been all this stuff, folks. That you know, I hope Sovereign Tech listeners that that's not even a thing, uh, because like I said, there's you know antivirus software I think is worthless today, uh, especially with Windows Defender and a lot of stuff that I mean, let Microsoft handle the you know the fucking antivirus and all that you know all those different aspects. Um, you know, on your system. Uh, I mean, if you really wanted to use one, like maybe I could still recommend malware bytes, but uh, you know, that's different. That's not really an antivirus that, that that's, that's more for going after, you know, malware and spyware and all this stuff. Uh, but I think antivirus software on windows machines today is, is, is just, it doesn't mean anything. Uh, it doesn't really do anything and it can't actually keep up with the zero days. You know, it, it like, it can't really do its job. If you're going to get fucked, you're going to get fucked. Uh, I mean, the, the obvious solution, of course, is run to, you know, BSD or Linux or something like that. But I mean, the, you know, there's problems here right here in River City okay, <laughs> with Windows 10. Um, and, you know, actually, let, let's uh, well, before I get into the last bit there, here, this is this was another thing that was found out with Windows 10. Um, and it really proved a lot of what we talked about uh, on on Sovereign Tech and that a lot of security uh, 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 experts have been discussing for some time. Um, there was a, you know, Black Hat was was being held over the past week, uh, the Black Hat conference, you know, where everybody kind of kind of shows all their uh, not their wares, but all their exploits, all their famous exploits. And uh, it was revealed that, uh, or, you know, and, and this was already apparently already to some degree solved again. You know, when when you find out about a lot of these either viruses, malware, exploits, whatever, uh, when you find out about them, usually the companies that have that really need to do something about it already started doing something about it months before. Uh, like this problem where apparently you could, uh, you know, like the the keys, uh, what's called in, in the security world, kind of the golden key uh, to get past the secure boot for Windows 10. Uh, it was, it was leaked. I mean, it was crazy. So secure boot really failed and it failed because there were keys set up. There was a, a system put in place to allow developers to work around, uh, secure boot. Now secure boot is, uh, this is a part of the Eufy, which Eufy replaced the BIOS, of course. Um, and secure boot was supposed to make sure that when you boot up, you are booting into whatever operating system you had installed, you know, namely Windows 10 in this case. Uh, and, you know, in that way, nothing, you know, no root kits or, you know, you wouldn't have any, uh, you know, anything at that level, at the kind of the startup level being able to enact on your machine. Uh, this, <laughs> this has not worked out very well. So because, because Microsoft created, you know, these back doors effectively, or as they're called, these golden keys to be able to get past all that. Uh, and you know, the claim is that it's for developers. Was it for the NSA? Well, the NSA did, you know, it is well known that since windows seven, the NSA has, you know, worked on, on the boot up process, uh, of, you know, of Microsoft's operating systems. Uh, so, you know, did the NSA do this? Well, mm-hmm. um, <laughs> but anyway, you know, this is the problem when you build in back doors, even if it's benign, the fact is, is that once somebody, you know, f- figures it out, uh, then, you know, 
hundreds of thousands, if not millions of systems are vulnerable to the worst kind of, uh, you know, security attack uh, on, on your computer. This is a huge issue. This is why you cannot build in backdoors. Honestly, even for the best of intentions, you should not build in backdoors into anything. And yet this is what governments constantly want. We need backdoors into your software. We need backdoors into your apps. We need backdoors into your phone. We need backdoors into your ass. Boy, they got those with taxation, don't they? But when, you know, when you create backdoors, well, this is what you get. You know, uh, and again, this was known two months ago. Microsoft has already released patches uh, for the problem. So, you know, I, there's nothing for you to do right now about it. But it just really proves the point of the danger of having even what are, would be considered positive backdoors and all this. Uh, you know, it's a real, real problem. And if anything, you should be very, very open about it if you do, even if it's like something, say, for developers to be able to take advantage of. Uh, it's insane. You know, and and. Just to show a little more government stupidity, and while we're talking about Windows, holy fuck, there was a story that that was making the rounds that apparently the London Metro Police, the the entire department, is still running 27,000 computers using Windows XP, an operating system that support was ended for April 2014. What the fuck? Now, of course, they, they're already planning on addressing it, and they plan on addressing their use of incredibly antiquated, uh, you know, computer systems that are, uh, you know, obviously they're not getting security updates, uh, you know, no matter what, uh, that hold data, uh, sometimes very private, very personal data about citizens, quote unquote. Uh, you know, so how are they going to solve this? What's their plan? Uh, are they going to finally, it's like, okay, good. Well, then the, we, we got 27,000 machines. Why don't we update everything? Let's get everything up to snuff with Windows 10. Uh, nope, they're going to update to Windows 8.1. One of the worst operating systems next to Vista ever devised. Well, I mean, it's not one of the worst. It, it's not like terrible, but it, it's just also not very intuitive. <laughs> like, like it, it has a, I, in my opinion, has a terrible UX. Um, holy fuck. You know, I mean, like there's a comfort in it, right? That governments are this stupid and that they're using such antiquated technology, you know, <laughs> but at the same time, you know, they are claiming to be, you know, protecting you uh, folks. They can't do that when they're using operating systems that are, especially ones that aren't open source and that, you know, or, whatever that are what 15 when did windows xp come out 2001 and we're in let's see 2016 let me just double check my watch to make sure that that's actually the year holy shit where are your tax dollars going in britain anyway like i said there's a small comfort in the fact that that obviously they're muprons but oh man um, here's one last story that I, that I want to get on, and then we will get into our main story because I think it's a doozy. Uh, there has, it's been, an, well, I just discovered about, uh, I just discovered this. There is a battery status API that has been built into Firefox, Chrome, and Opera. Okay, now this API is something that, that it, what it's designed obviously for mobile and really laptops as well, to where a website with this API running can tell what your battery status is and can thus feed you either ads or other relevant data on, you know, on a website. Um, but we also know that a battery status can be used to track you uh, and battery status, you know, th this API, this battery status API can actually read a whole ton of things about whatever device or machine you happen to be using. And do you know who came up 
and who approved and thought that this battery status API was a good idea? W3C. <laughs> you know, this is the, this is the company that that's setting up all the web standards that, oh, we're so big on open source. In fact, I remember the, the, the head, one of the, or at least a representative of that organization was speaking at a Bitcoin conference a few years ago saying, oh yeah, we're going to get Bitcoin into all this stuff. You know, yeah, we're on board with, you know, privacy, security and all this stuff. And yet you're putting in the stupid fucking ass battery status API that, you know, it, whoa, this is why the free software foundation makes ice cat. Yeah, you know, like Firefox really is. I mean, there is ugly shit that Firefox is doing here and there. I'm not saying stop using Firefox. I'm just saying be aware, okay, you know, of the of like this stuff getting plugged in. I mean, that this it's it's nuts. You know how how just the web browser alone, you know, and various websites using you know through the web browser can track you just by going to a website. So anyway, I, I just, I heard that, I mean, if, you know, and it's only Firefox, Chrome, and Opera, as I understand it. Microsoft Edge and uh, Safari are not affected, at least as far as I know, Edge isn't, maybe I know IE isn't. Uh, and I would envision that IceCat, and I don't, I don't know SeaMonkey has it or not. Um, but hot damn. I mean, I, you know, I admittedly, I feel somewhat comforted in the fact that I've always recommended that if you are a Mac user, use Safari, you know, all day long. It's a fine web browser. Uh, so, Hey, well, anyway, you know, kudos to Apple on that one. Um, but let's, let's get into, all right, let's do the main story here. Uh, because, and, and this is, I think this is really, really interesting. And then, uh, oh man, we're going to have some fun during uh, tech roulette. Uh, but let's do this. And this story, this is, uh, this is, well, you know, I'm, I'm going to, and I think this might shock some people, but I'm going to talk very kindly about Apple, the company. Uh, this story is an ode to the iPod classic by Lindsay Salads. Uh, and I, and the, the underscore here is what the click wheel taught us about listening to music. And I want to read the story, but I'm going to take this in places that I don't think she intended. Okay. Because I think the click wheel might've taught us a whole lot more. Uh, so, but I'm going to start reading here. Uh, this is really worth listening to, or, you know, this is really great stuff. Um, so I'll read on. Wow, a man said to me recently on the subway, I haven't seen one of those things in years. He gestured toward the scuffed yet still sleek aluminum colored rectangle in my hand. A 160 gigabyte sixth generation iPod classic. I blinked for a moment. We were not talking about, say, a quill pen, a monocle or a bottle of crystal Pepsi, but an electronic device I had purchased in 2010. I knew what he meant, though. Technology moves at hyperspeed. Apple has created and helped universalize a particular kind of planned obsolescence. Its products have uh, have to go out of fashion and or break every few years to ensure you'll buy a newer one. And as a result, in the eyes of the general public, last year's model has never looked like more of an antique. The Museum of Modern Art recently hosted an exhibit called Making uh, quote, making music modern designed for ear and eye end quote, which showcased the successive innovations in music players over the past century or so. As I strolled through the piece that stopped me in my tracks and made me think, wow, look at that dinosaur was an old Victrola, uh, or a bulky, bulkily primitive jukebox, but a, you know, it was not one of those, but a first generation iPod circa 2001, complete with a clunky pre-touch click wheel and get this a firewire port <laughs> of course firewires stallion breaking in firewire has been long dead huh as hard as apple tried with that one uh quote nothing in the world end quote writes uh bren lerner in his two 2014 novel uh 10 o'clock or 10 o'clock uh quote is as old as what was futuristic in the past 
end quote. Boy, isn't that, that's, that's an insight for, you know, for the world. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm going to stop for, for one second here before I read on with the story. Um, I had my sixth generation, 160 gigabyte black, uh, or space gray, uh, uh, iPod classic really up until I think I got rid of it maybe a year after. So like in 20, I don't know, 2012 or whatever, but I had it for a good long while, um, or for a while. I mean, I, I kept it even while I was in New Hampshire, I still used it, even though I had a nice Android phone and all this stuff, you know, I was still using the iPod classic. I love that thing. Uh, so I can totally relate. Uh, and I, you know, I sold it and equally, you know, this is interesting. It being a few years old, I still traded it into a GameStop for like 70 bucks. You know, yeah, they ran about two, two fifty, uh, you know, to get one, but I mean, that's, that's high value, <laughs> you know, in, in, in this world. I mean, people want these things. Uh, so anyway, I'm going to read on here more with the story and we'll talk more about that in a minute. Uh, quote, or, you know, reading on the story on September 9th, 2014, Apple announced that it would no longer be making the iPod classic for a seemingly all powerful corporation. Its reasoning was uncharacteristically defeatist quote. We couldn't get the parts anymore. Not anywhere on earth. End quote. Apple CEO Tim Cook later explained, quote, it wasn't a matter of me swinging the axe saying, hey, what can I kill today? The engineering work was massive and the number of people who wanted it very small. End quote. Well, relatively small. Uh, but, well, stallion breaking in here. So understand the reason the iPod Classic was stopped getting produced wasn't because they just wanted to kill off the product, perhaps. Uh, even I may have thought that at the time uh, when I heard about it, because I thought it was really sad that it was going away. Um, but it was because they just couldn't get the parts for it anymore. You know, and, and I guess it just wasn't that profitable enough um, to, you know, to make it themselves to open up their own plant. And I can understand that. Uh, but it really speaks to just how I think perfected you know, that device was, I mean, the iPod classic, it's last generation, you know, was sitting around for years and years, uh, and they must've been doing sales. It was just the fact that, you know, they, they couldn't get the parts for it. Reading on, uh, he was not wrong about the low sales numbers, especially when compared to a product like the iPhone, which essentially ended the need for a separate mobile music player. But in the weeks after the, after Apple killed off the classic, something unexpected happened. Used iPods started selling for double, triple, even quadruple their original retail price on eBay. By December, a characteristically melodramatic Daily Mail headline enthused, quote, iPod classic, which is three years old, is Apple's hottest item this Christmas, end quote. The Apple Watch never stood a chance. <laughs> Uh, Stanley breaking in again, um, or well, let me read a little bit more here. Uh, who would fork over up to a thousand dollars or more? Uh, a factory sealed seventh generation is listed for 1699 on eBay right now for an old obsolete MP3 player, except a stick in the uh, mud Luddite resistant to our inevitable progress toward a cloud-based future. I'm not sure, but I think these people were onto something. So I'm going to stop for a second. Uh, uh, this is not the first time that this has happened with an Apple product either. Uh, in fact, I think it was the fifth generation, if I remember correctly, the fifth generation iPod uh, uh, Nano was was this device very slim it looked like a much slimmer ipod classic they eventually went to a different model where it was more squarish you know and, and like it had the little touchscreen and everything but there was the one that they released i think it was the fifth fourth or fifth generation that had a camera built into it and then had like a had a whole video uh editing suite uh that had like filters and all this different stuff built right into the ipod that iPod, which normally would only cost you one one fifty, was even even like uh, just a couple of years ago, and perhaps even today, those will still sell uh, for three hundred, five hundred dollars, crazy amounts of money because people loved having this you know really great little camera. 
a video camera at that, you know, with only 16 gigabytes of storage, but also had this really intuitive, very nice, and I loved it, this very nice uh, uh, little movie editing suite in it. Oh, just amazing, that that little device. Uh, the iPods were really the thing. I've said it before, uh, and I'll read on more with the story, but I've said it before. The iPod was the revolutionary product. It is what brought on the mobile revolution. It was not the iPhone. It was not smartphones. It was the iPod that brought on that personal nature. That's what really gets everybody, you know, the personal private nature that everybody gets excited about with the mobile revolution. That That's what really brought it on, uh, you know, because everything was right between your ears, baby, with that music. So anyway, let's read more of the story here. Uh, quote, or when I'm searching for something to listen to on Spotify, yeah, quote, when I'm listening, to, uh, when I'm searching for something to listen to on Spotify, I feel like I end up listening to the same albums and artists again and again. And quote, my friend Becca wrote in an email after I asked a handful of acquaintances about their post iPod listening habits. Again, this is in the story. Quote, my brain by itself isn't good at cataloging everything I love. End quote. Uh, the psychologist Barry Schwartz has written, or if you don't have too much time on your hands, has a TED talked about a related phenomenon he calls paradox of choice. The notion that, and we've talked about that on Sovereign Tech before, uh, the notion that although we tend to think of freedom of choice as an inherently good thing, too much choice can leave us feeling paralyzed and anxiety written or ridden. Quote, with so many options to choose from, end quote, he says, quote, people find it very difficult to choose at all, end quote. I personally have proven this theory many times over in the past few months when I've stared for a few moments at the infinity, uh, infinite void that is the Apple Music search bar and decided, quote, I guess I'll just listen to Pablo or Lemonade again. Those are albums, uh, end quote. Another friend I emailed summed up the paradox of digital music listening succinctly. Quote, with device-bound listening, I absolutely feel limited by storage space. Uh, with streaming, I feel limited by my own memory, end quote. Now, I'm going to stop there for a second. I, I want to talk about this aspect of it, the paradox of choice. Uh, like, I understand the importance of curation, uh, and that's really what limited storage kind of allows for. It allows for curation and even kind of creates an inherent value because, well, I can only put so much, so I really better put on what I really love or what I really want to explore that's new and, and things like this. Um, I understand that. But at the same time, let's not take the paradox of choice too far and say we need to remove choice. Okay. Choice should still be there. Choice, you know, as in general is a, like it said, is a good thing. Um, you know, but is it okay to have devices and technologies that allow for curation? Absolutely. But they need to, you need to be able to opt in into those. You shouldn't have to like, or, you know, the system shouldn't come out where you remove choice completely or you remove options. Uh, so the paradox of choice, some people take that a little too far. Don't do that. Okay. Because choices are freedom, are literal. That is the literal definition, in my opinion, of freedom, choices and options. Uh, so anyway, but I get it. Curation is a good thing, you know, and, 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 Having a, you know, a device like an iPod, uh, really kind of, kind of forced you to do some personal uh, curation. Well, not forced, but well, yeah, I mean, you, you were limited in, in storage space reading on Catherine Moore, an adjunct professor who studies music technology and digital media at the university of Toronto agrees with this assessment assessment quote, people just don't know where to start end quote. She says of listening in the streaming era Moore also pointed, pointed me to Harvard business school, professor Anita Elbsberth, a much discussed 2013 book blockbusters, which explores the business decisions behind massive entertainment hits quote, her findings showed that this enormous proliferation of choice has actually made big, giant hits even bigger, end quote. Schwartz's theory posits that there's a sweet spot. Quote, some choice is better than none, but it doesn't follow from that that more choice is better than some choice. There's some magical amount. I don't know what it is, end quote. Streaming services are currently on a quest to find that magic number. Think of the new fixation on discovery, curation, and tastemaker-created or algorithm-created playlists. Last month, uh, the Ringer's own Victor Lucasen wrote a piece about Spotify's popular Discover Weekly feature, noting that the company, quote, initially tested a 100-song version of the feature, but found that combined... That 
combing through that many songs, uh, combing through that many songs was exhausting for users. End quote. It took off once Spotify whittled down uh, that or whittled that down to a more manageable 30 songs. In terms of device storage capacity, I think the magic number was, for me, 160 gigabytes, the size of my iPod Classic, large enough that I was never worried about running out of room, but small enough for my device to feel manageable and personally curated. Ryan, another friend who I emailed, remembered iPod, iPod libraries as, quote, uh, great conversation starters, end quote, he mused. Quote, it was nice to feel like you should you could showcase your curated collection of music to friends via an iPod. Often someone had a Neil Young rarity or a friend's unreleased record, uh, so each one seemed pretty intimate and personal, end quote. I'm already dipping a toe into the realm of nostalgia and sentimentality, so let's just dive in. My still-functional iPod bears the grubby fingerprints of the person I was from roughly 2010 until the end of 2014, when my old laptop kicked the bucket and I stopped updating my device. It contains 323 songs by the Mountain Goats, 153 by payment. She goes down a list of everything that she listens to, blah, 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 blah. Uh, sure, our phones might hold some of this sentimental junk, but unless we've sprung for one of with a massive amount of storage space, we're constantly having to clear them out to make room for the new. And in a larger sense, we're now fully immersed in the Snapchat era in which our digital footprints are becoming more and more ephemeral, if only to make room for the humongous data uh, amount of data we will generate in any given day. At the risk of sounding like a total geezer, I can't help but feel that we've long since crossed the threshold of that magic number into the realm where there's simply too much music, too many tweets, too much stuff out there to feel anything but overloaded and paralyzed almost all of the time. That is a huge quote to keep in mind right there. Let's read a little bit more. The best thing about the iPod was that when I was listening to music, what w that was all I was doing, end quote, wrote my friend Miriam. Quote, when I'm listening to something really beautiful on my phone and it fades out for a phone call, I get a little upset at whoever, end quote. Boy, I can feel that one standing here. Whoa. You know, when it be, when it, when it pauses, you know, and it's just about to rock out into like David Lee Roth's Just Like Paradise, fuck, I get pissed off. Anyway, <laughs> uh, there is, of course, the iPhone's Do Not Disturb button, but in my experience, that can be flicked off just as easily as it can be flicked on. In the tech world, everything is moving toward multifunctionality. The shift, in some sense, is physically liberating. If your smartphone can play music and send and receive phone calls and texts, uh, get a phone, you know, get you a phone that can do both. That's uh, an iPod, but one more device, you know, what's an iPod, but one more device weighing down your bag. At the same time, the shift makes immersive, distraction-free listening feel more and more like a thing of the past. A few years ago, pulp frontman Jarvis, uh, Jarvis uh, Cocker observed this dynamic in an interview with The Guardian. Uh, people, quote, people still listen to music, end quote, he said, but quote, but it's not as central. It's more like a scented candle. It sets the mood. I think people like things that just make the right kind of noise, but leave your brain free to do something else. End quote. Moore says something is lost in the shift. Quote, it makes it harder for new music, especially new music that is a little unusual to get people's attention. End quote. She says listening on multifunction services or multifunction devices favors repetitive, unchallenging songs that you don't need to use much of your brain to process. Cocker's scented candle music. More, though, uh, notes that it's more challenging, less predictable music uh, that over time provides listeners with the greatest rewards. Quote, often of those types of songs, people will say that when they first listened to it, they didn't get it or didn't particularly like it. But then as they listen more, it becomes their favorite song. End quote, she says, end quote, those songs take some concentration. End quote. Boy, I'll tell you, Stallion breaking in here on that one. This is so true. I remember this was, you know, this is even pre iPod. Uh, back when Motley Crue's Generation Swine came out, the album, uh, what is that, 97? Yeah, because there's the Shout at the Devil remix, 97. I love that. Um, and it took me, I bought it because it's Motley Crue, and I'm like, no, it's my, I'm, you know, huge Motley Crue fan. 
sight unseen, I'll buy it. it you know, there's got to be something there that makes it worth it. So, you know, 20 bucks down. All right, take it home. It took me like five times to listen to it. But thankfully, because or, you know, well, because of the nature of the thing, I don't know if I want to say thankfully, I could, you know, I, I wanted to. It's like I put money into this. And I don't have a whole bunch of, well, actually I had a lot of other albums, but you know, I had a, a, I had a limited amount of music. I was like, no, I'm going to keep giving this a shot. I want to listen to that again. I want to try that out again. What were they thinking? You know, and you have to have that. You really have to have some degree of confidence in the artists themselves, I think, to even be able to do that in the first place. So that's an important part of this as well as having confidence in, you know, either the artist or perhaps in the person that recommended this to you. Uh, which, you know, why would you trust an algorithm? I, I certainly wouldn't. And I've yet to find a need to, even though some people claim they do. But anyway, um, you know, I listen after about maybe the fifth time going over the album Generation Swine, I recognized its brilliance. Then I suddenly got it. I started to feel it. I felt the attitude. I felt the overall gist of the album and all this. And, you know, we, we can get into arguments about whether or not albums in and of themselves are good things or that like they are a natural, uh, the natural best way to transmit music, you know, uh, like maybe EPs are better or singles are better or something like that. You know, that's a, that's a separate conversation that I'm willing to have at some point. Uh, but regardless, like, yeah, you know, if, if you don't give, I mean, sometimes, you know, a person will see a seven minute song and they'll be like, well, I'm not going to listen to seven minutes. What the hell? You know, or they want to shift. I mean, I know a lot of people, they can't even listen, uh, you know, to, to, I mean, they can't even listen to a full song anymore. A minute and a half. Okay. I got the gist. They move on to the next song and take something else in. Yeah. That, that idea of too much music. I wonder. Um, but anyway, there's a lot more I, I want to cover on this. So here we go. Uh, when I listen to my iPod these days, it gives me the small but subversive thrill of going against the grain, not only rejecting the hectic multitask rhythm of, of, of smartphone life, but also pushing back against the digital marketplace that's trying to instill in me loyalty towards certain streaming services rather than the music and the artists themselves. When I'm listening to my iPod, I am at least for the moment opting out of the streaming wars which as services like Apple music and title uh, compete for exclusive songs walled off to subscribers off their competitors increasingly feels like a losing game for the listener. Let's conveniently put aside the fact that I gave Apple music's uh, parent company a couple hundred bucks to buy the device in the first place. Uh, it would have seemed insane to suggest this in the early aughts when the iPod seemed like an emblem of our cultural overload, a thousand songs in your pocket, but using an iPod in the age of the smartphone almost feels like an act of meditation. I'm slowing down, tuning out, placing my life for the length of an album or even a single song in do not disturb mode to plenty of people. The desire to do what will seem silly, absurd, even old fashioned or to plenty of people, the desire to do that will seem silly, absurd, even old fashioned. Fair enough. In my brief survey, I noticed that the ones who expressed the most nostalgia for the iPod classic were, and this is a term I use with both love and self-identification, the music nerds, Friends I made at my college radio station, as well as other people who make, listen to, or write about music for a living. And unless Tim Cook stumbles upon an elephant graveyard of unused iPod parts anytime soon, this niche group will uh, will be the ones who still evangelize the iPod long after its death and even pay through the nose for new or refurbished refurbished ones when their you know, own needs replacing. The iPod classic is now becoming that what vinyl was a decade or two ago. Not when vinyl became cool again, but during the CD era, when it seemed obsolete to everyone but collectors and music snobs, which is to say that the iPod's quote-unquote vintage resurgence is probably inevitable. Rest in peace, sweet iPod classic. See you at Urban Outfitters in 2036. <laughs> so that's the whole gist. I thought that that was a fascinating article on a bunch of different levels. Okay, and I, I definitely get like that, that 
the iPod Classic is sort of the symbol of the music snob uh, in, in all this. I mean, I, I think there's there's some truth to that. The curation aspect of it, the limited, you know, uh, options that you have, you know, of music to, you know, how much you can fit onto the device. You know, that's an interesting aspect. I'll admit when the iPod was still a thing, like I was wanting that two terabyte iPod because I had that much music. You know, it's like, oh, yeah, it's like, give me a two terabyte iPod and I'm on board with it, baby. You know, let, let's let's do this. Um, and even when the iPhone came out, I was kind of like, OK, yeah, come out with a least, you know, come out with an iPhone that has as much storage as the iPod or is, you know, as the iPod does as the iPod Classic. And then, yeah, OK, fine. I'll get on board um, with, you know, with the iPhone. Now, two things have happened. I think there's an aspect of this nostalgia of this love for the iPod Classic um, that, that I don't think is getting discussed here. I largely kind of agree with the, the statements as far as the music goes in that article. So I don't necessarily need to touch on that. But one thing that's changed is that what I think people are also feeling as far as the nostalgia with the iPod Classic was the pre-iTunes 11 versions of iTunes, because iTunes used to be great fucking software. I mean, really, really good. It used to be your, you know, your home for your podcast and your music all in one. And there were so many great little, there were so many great features. Some of the features still exist, but the presentation and the design and the UX of iTunes is so terrible now. It's so fucking bad. Um, yeah, and, and the other thing I think that they're missing is also the iPod, you know, could store, could store some movies. I mean, this was a big deal, you know, people using the iPod classic to go watch porn in the bathroom at work. Oh, fuck. Yeah, I did that. <laughs> Why not? You know, be a homemade or, or, you know, stuff that you downloaded from wherever. Um, then you have, uh, you know, the, the pictures, that was another thing that you could show off pictures with it. There's so many little things you could do with the iPod. Uh, the other nice thing was, is that you could actually partition off a part of the iPod to be a portable hard drive. And a lot of people miss that it was used for that as well to connect to your PC. I would even use it often enough, um, as my, you know, to run portable apps from portable apps.com, say on a, a windows machine at work or something. Uh, you know, that, that, that was one aspect of it. So I think there's also a nostalgia for when iTunes was actually great. You know, when the software itself was great uh, and it wasn't so much about Apple Music and and maybe even it was great outside of whether or not you were ever going to buy any music on iTunes even, you know. Uh, so so there's that aspect of it. The other aspect that I think that's going on with the iPod Classic, and this is what I really wanted to touch on here, um, is the click wheel itself is the real the feel, the motion, the the fact that there's like a hardware button. You know, and, and also the weightiness. I think this is the other thing that people miss about the iPod Classic is it had a certain amount of weight to it that no smartphone really has. Smartphones generally are very lightweight. But I think when something feels lightweight, I know they, they want to put that out as like, oh, this is a great and wonderful thing. And of course, I, I guess, you know, considering the amount that people use, um, use their smartphones, it probably does feel like a good thing, doesn't it? <laughs> uh, you know, because, because you're holding your arm up that long, but when something has weight to it, it feels more valuable. Like it feels more real, more tangible. Like, like there's, there's something, you know, really, that really means something in your hand. So I think there's that aspect of it. And then like the fact that the click wheel, like, you know, you, you feel the satisfying click as to where, you know, touch, there's no satisfaction to the touch. It, the whole, I mean, you know, the music is all ephemeral now because of streaming the UI, I think feels very ephemeral because of touch screens. And I think we might be forgetting something based upon the touchscreen because you know the entire screen is itself a user interface i think we're losing the fact that there are clever ways to operate something there are clever you know user experiences uh you know user interfaces i should say not experiences but user interfaces 
that we're forgetting about. I'm reminded there's an episode of Star Trek Voyager um, where there it's, it's a time travel episode. It's really fun. And they're aboard the USS Relativity, okay, which is the ship from like the 27th or 29th century, whatever. Um, and it's a Starfleet ship from way in the future. So they had, you know, how do you make start? I mean, and it was a really great challenge because how do you make start, you know, Starfleet, especially with after the next generation and so on, you know, already looks so advanced. How do we make this look more advanced? And what they did is that the controls, like say at, at the, you know, at the ops uh, center on, on the relativity on the ship, the relativity, the controls were all circular. And I'm sure they got that off of the iPod classic, like everything that they were doing, they would make like these circular motions and everything, but based upon what they were doing at the time and what they were controlling, it made a lot of sense. It wasn't just cinemagenic. Like it made perfect sense for based upon the actions that they were taking, doing these circular motions. And I think, so, you know, honestly, like missing the iPod classic, I think we're also missing an ingenious user interface, that being the click wheel. Um, and we're missing that at our detriment of that, you know, now, you know, talk about the paradox of choice when you can touch anywhere, anything, you know, on the screen, uh, well, what am I going to hit? What do I do? And also, I mean, like there's, there's so much missing in that it, with the controls that, that are a failure. I mean, this is a big deal in the gaming space as well. It's where touchscreens will just never, ever be for traditional gaming. As we know, it will never, ever be good at that. I just don't think that's going to happen no matter what Apple does with 3d touch or whatever. The iPod classic was so much genius. That was so much brilliance. That's what saved the company, you know, the iPod classic. And I get it why they're not making any more, but damn, are we missing something? And I'm sure eventually there's going to be like a retro, you know, I don't know, on a 20th anniversary of it or something. Maybe Tim Cook will release, uh, you know, a retro version of the iPod classic, uh, which I could believe it. I could believe that that'll come out and I kind of hope it does. And yeah, I just, I think we're, you know, with everything going to touchscreen, we're losing out on some potential brilliance in the space of user interfaces. And I think there's still a lot of brilliance in the click wheel and that needs to be looked at again. It was an amazing device, just an amazing, amazing device that, that we don't give enough credit to. Uh, and that I think quickly gets forgotten. Uh, honestly, I wish I never sold mine. I, I really do. I wish I never sold it. Uh, <laughs> cause I, I love that damn thing, even though I'd have to contend, well, it could work with other, other didn't just have to use iTunes, even though I'd have to contend with that, perhaps, Oh man, those things are so good. And, and, you know, in single purpose devices, that's another thing that's just going by the wayside. That is so key. You know, when you pick up an e-reader and you read on that compared to reading on your phone or tablet, it's night and day, man. And you know it and you feel it just because of that single purposeness of it. You really, you really love that. So anyway, maybe these kind of devices will continue on and, you know, they'll always be sort of niche, but they'll be there. I just hope they're there. That's the choice I want is that these things still exist. You know, give me the ability, give me the choice to choose my music. Right. <laughs> anyway, we got another, we got a doozy coming up in Tech Roulette. I'll be back with more Sovereign Tech. Hey, okay, real quick. Look, if you want to get your hands on something that actually lasts and doesn't require parts from Apple or, or anybody else, really, and that has one hell of a history and has definitely, uh, you know, been value in the hand for a good long while, I want you to get your hands on some gold and silver, maybe in some platinum and palladium from Roberts and Roberts Brokerage. We are so honored uh, that they are a continued sponsor of Sovereign Tech. Tim Fry there believes in what's happening with the show and the message that we're getting out there, you know, and securing things down. And, you know, precious metals, that's one way to secure your wealth, baby, to secure your value. So I want you to get on board with that. They'll also, get, I mean, well, understand this. They know that Bitcoin is the real deal. They know it's real money. If you want to buy some of that with your Bitcoin, believe me, 
Roberts and Roberts wants your Bitcoin. Okay. They are Bitcoin preferred. Uh, I don't know any other precious metal dealer that is absolutely Bitcoin preferred. Uh, and they are fast, very fast shipping. Um, in fact, they will even, uh, they will buy, uh, you know, gold and silver off of you as well. Uh, so, I mean, this is a one-stop shop for precious metals. Uh, you want to follow them. They're keeping track and all the prices on everything. They're just, they're just absolutely great. Uh, you can follow them on Twitter actually at full meta Liberty. Full as in full metal liberty, but only one L, full metal liberty. But go to gold.zog.ninja. That'll take you there. Uh, you know, you can get your hands on great prices for gold and silver, platinum, palladium, coins, all the stuff, all the good stuff that you want. Let's get back to some sovereign tech. Thank Robert Roberts for being sponsored. Pixel. Pixel, I'm being chased by assassin bots. I need an exit. Pixel. Boy and Sovereign, come with me if you want to leave. Who are you? I'm Adelaide. I'll tell you more later. Get in the vehicle. Get in a car with a scantily clad and beautiful woman? Guess it's been my first choice before. Let's go. First choice. It is time for First Choice, where I cover the stories that get sent in to me through the various channels available. Of course, really now, it's kind of down to only two channels. <laughs> Uh, last week I, I did a serious pruning and, uh, Twitter and email are really the two ways uh, to get in touch with the show. Or if you're a sovereign tech, Patreon, uh, subscriber, you can get in touch with me through Patreon itself. Patreon has a private messenger there and I always respond to those, uh, right away. Uh, so, or, you know, as quickly as I can anyway. Um, so those are the ways to get in touch with the show. If you want to send stories for me to cover. And of course, that's the way also to ask questions, uh, which I don't get to questions in the main show generally anymore, unless maybe I do it special for the climax. If it's a big deal, or maybe even I'll do it for a lead story or something. So you can still ask, but if you really want to get in on the Q and a part of things, uh, you want to become a patron. So anyway, sovereign tech or patreon.com slash sovereign tech uh, to find out about that. Um, but let's get into this week's uh, uh, tech roulette. This is another one where we're going to have some fun. I thought that the story about the iPod classic was a lot of fun because it, it does show, you know, there's a whole lot of thought and brilliance, especially when you're creating a new category or entering a new category uh, like Apple did with the iPod. You know, I mean, it's, it's really that I think that's an amazing story. And I think eventually one day you, we might just end up going back to that sort of thing. Uh, and it'll just be amazing at, you know, people, maybe people get to rediscover music, again, uh, you know, all over again. Um, because I, you know, I mean, admittedly podcasting, you know, has kind of killed the radio star to some degree as well, because, uh, a lot of people listen to just podcasts now instead of before, perhaps where they would listen to music here and there. And that, that doesn't happen anymore. So, but I do really recognize people don't, you know, really digest and take in albums, uh, any longer, or even, you know, single songs, uh, for that matter. But anyway, that wasn't the main thing I wanted to talk about. I, I was more interested in the UI and the design of the iPod itself, which I think was just a master just an absolute masterpiece. Um, but let's get it. We're going to go way into left field now. Okay. And this could have made for one hell of a fun, uh, hack sec, uh, segment of the show, but instead I'm going to do it right here. Uh, because, uh, someone, uh, listener had brought it to my attention and I have mentioned this before, but I never went into too much depth with it. Uh, I had mentioned this before on sovereign tech. 
but I really, I, I think it's worth getting into, uh, you know, a little deeper. Um, and what this is about is this is about Gary McKinnon. Now, if you don't know that name, that's okay. After you listen to me, you'll probably never forget it. Uh, but Gary McKinnon was a sysadmin. He's Scottish, lives in London or lived in, well, he's still in London, uh, because it ended up becoming a very, very famous, uh, uh hacking case. Uh, and what happened was, is that in, oh, it was in two, March of 2002, he was doing this between February 2001 and March of 2002. Uh, he was, you know, kind of cracking or, you know, hacking into uh, DOD, you know, Defense Department, U.S. Defense Department uh, servers and websites and all this stuff. And as I understand it, he was really just using a Perl script. Now, we know that he was doing this because he got charged for it. <laughs> like like a case, he, they, you know, the U.S. government for years and years and years was trying to extradite him uh, from Britain you know, to the U S I mean, that's how serious this was. In fact, it's still considered, I think it's still the largest quote unquote hack, uh, against, uh, us, you know, U S government or military servers, uh, ever committed. But now the interesting aspect of this and what, what's, well, what's really interesting is what he claims to have found on there. Um, but the interesting aspect of it, uh, is that, you know, there was very little security on any of these websites and on these servers. So it was very, you know, he's, he wasn't, he's, I mean, he'll, I think Gary McKinnon will be the first to tell you he's not like, not that smart of a guy or he's not that, you know, great with, uh, uh, you know, with pen testing, uh, you know, to, to have been able to do this. Uh, it was just the lack, it was the falling behind. I mean, you know, we, we said, we mentioned earlier in the show how, you know, speaking of London, the London Metro police department is still has 27,000 computers running windows XP. So, I mean, you know, governments are buffoons when it comes to a lot of this technology stuff, unless they hire people that aren't buffoons. Um, but anyway, so this, you know, none of this was, you know, it was all kind of out in the open. Just you had to know how to look and just go look for it, uh, which Gary McKinnon was. Now, admittedly, part of the reason I think that this case was taken so seriously is that, again, February 2001 to March of 2002, 9-11, right? It was happening during 9-11. So this got a lot of attention because, oh man, you know, DOD servers were, you know, or at least, you know, military servers were, uh, were getting hacked into. Ooh. So why was Gary McKinnon, McKinnon doing it? I want to tell you that. And then, you know, this has been a case that's been dragged on for like a decade, more than a decade. Uh, but then I, I want to, you know, play a news clip for you as far as like what happened at the end of the case, because I mean, this guy was going to be seeing decades of time, much like, uh, you know, some other people that were really just looking for information. And that's what Gary McKinnon was doing is he was Trying to find out, I mean, and, you know, we've debunked a lot of these free energy stories, you know, these uh, zero point energy stories on Sovereign Tech in the past. Um, but he claims that he was trying to find information on free energy, you know, on this idea that they're that, you know, the government already has all this technology and that they already know how to produce energy, you know, at, at no cost and, you know, using all these zero point systems and everything, uh, you know, cold, uh, I, I forget what, what the, what the term is for that, but there's that like reverse cold negative capacitance or whatever. Uh, anyway, so this, this case, finally, I want to talk about what else he supposedly found, but fortunately this case had come to a close a couple of years ago and, uh, you know, he's not getting extradited, but why don't I go ahead and just play the news clip here that, that, that succincts it a little bit better. Let's get straight back to our breaking news for you here on RT. Britain, Gary McKinnon, who's accused of hacking into the Pentagon, will stay in the UK after his extradition to the US was blocked. Let's now talk to artist Polly Boyka, who's standing by for us uh, live in London, joining us now live. Polly, good to see you. The extradition has 
has been blocked. What is next for Gary McKinnon? Yes, well, waterboarding of the mind, that's what Gary McKinnon's mother has called the 11-year wait to know what's going to happen to her son. The experience of waiting all that time from when he was arrested back in 2002 for hacking into U.S. military computers. All that time, uh, the U.S. has wanted him to go on trial there where he could face a pot potentially 60-year sentence. Now, it's a massive sigh of relief for McKinnon, who now knows that he's not facing extradition. Theresa May said that it would be because of a, it would be a breach of his human rights to send him there because uh, Gary McKinnon, as many now know, he is mentally ill and he would be at a massive risk of suicide if he were to go to the States. Now, um, it, it, there's been a strong line of pressure from the United States to send him over. So this is very much a difficult decision for the Home Secretary that she had to make today. However, she has now made it. It now means that Gary McKinnon stays in the UK and prosecutors here are going to decide whether or not he should face trial in the UK. Well, certainly, Polly, you talk about uh, the tough decision for the British Home Secretary there. Uh, not exactly a kowtowing to, to what some say is the bullying weight that comes out of Capitol Hill, of course, in Washington, D.C. Uh, you know, she's also said, though, that the, uh, the, the secretary there to, to, uh, to commission a review, ultimately, of extradition laws themselves. Any changes we can expect, Polly? Yes, so it's a wider repercussion from the decision on Gary McKinnon today that's uh, interesting to a lot of observers because a lot of people in the UK have spoken for a long time now about how unbalanced and unfair the UK-US extradition treaty is. It's seen nine times more Britons go over to the US in the past 10 years than uh, UK citizens come back to the, than US citizens, I'm sorry, come over to the UK to be tried. So uh, what the Home Secretary has suggested is that there is now going to be a forum bar for anybody who's wanted by the United States. That means, uh, in plain terms, it means that anybody wanted by the U.S. is going to first have a hearing in the U.K. where judges will decide whether or not it's fair to send a suspect over to the States. All right, Artie's Polly Boyko, they're live in London. Thank you. Now, if only Kick-Ass Torrance alleged founder Artem Volin could have that deal that they were just talking about where there's a forum bar where they, you know, need to actually try them first. Uh, of course he got arrested in Poland and is getting supposedly getting extradited to the United States, but I'll save that story for later on during HackSec. Um, so that is obviously from 2013. Uh, Gary McKinnon was, you know, fortunately relieved of, or, you know, at least he's not getting extradited as far as anything that has happened to him. As far as I know, he's walking free and getting interviewed and doing whatever uh, in London. So, you know, no charges being held against him there, uh, thankfully. So, and I don't think hacking is a crime. Cracking is a crime when you're doing something malicious to go harm some people, but I don't think hacking itself is in any way, uh, any kind of crime. I mean, if anything, you know, what, why can't we know what the U S military is doing? Well, that's the interesting thing is that his claim is that there might be a very good reason why the, the U S military doesn't want you to know what they're doing and why there isn't a whole lot of openness in government, because he claims to have found uh, and he has not, you know, recanted against a lot of these statements, even though it's interesting if you if you heard in that RT news clip there, uh, the claim is, is that he's very mentally ill. Now, that's probably just a lawyer thing. I mean, maybe he is. I don't you know, I can't say I've never met him, uh, you know, not that I'm a psychiatrist, you know, to lay out those kind of, uh, uh, you know, ideas any, or, you know, those kind of judgments anyway. Um, but uh, it's interesting that he was claimed to be mentally ill because, well, you might think he is. 
based upon what he claimed to have seen. And that's what I want to discuss right here. Uh, in the various, uh, you know, things that he found, he claims that he did find what he was looking for, uh, you know, about free energy technologies, zero point technologies and all that. But then he also claimed to have found pictures, um, of like, uh, around, uh, building eight, not building seven, building eight at Johnson space center. Okay. <laughs> Uh, building eight, uh, at, 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 uh, Johnson space center that supposedly shows, uh, there, there were cigar shaped UFOs, you know, ships that were there then, and then that were kind of Photoshopped out apparently of other versions of the picture. Uh, he saw all this, of course, based upon what he was using, I don't know, it was flash or Java based and, you know, a Perl script running all this stuff. Uh, he, he was not able apparently to get screenshots of this. That makes it a little bit questionable, but what's interesting about him having claimed to have seen pictures of cigar shaped ships is that if you remember a few episodes ago um, of sovereign tech, where we talked about some of these stories from a few hundred years ago, uh, like particularly the one in Germany where it was on the woodcut, which the woodcuts were the very serious newspapers of their day uh, where they talked about that. Everybody in this, you know, in this city in Ger or this village in Germany saw um, or, you know, in, in Europe anyway, uh, you know, saw this, this, like these cigar shaped ships fighting in the sky, you know, battling in the sky and all this. And one of them even crashes. Uh, so really, really interesting that, you know, that these, these claims correlate, of course, Gary McKinnon could have heard about those woodcuts, uh, the same way I did, you know, he could have read about them or saw them in a documentary or something. Uh, but his claim is it goes much further is that he started to find like Excel spreadsheets on these servers, on these military, you know, servers that were referencing terrestrial, uh, deployments and non-terrestrial deployments of soldiers and ships. What does non-terrestrial mean? <laughs> does that mean the water? You know, uh, but that's not his claim because apparently the, uh, you know, some of the names of like the officers and, and you know, and soldiers and servicemen, whatever, on these Excel, on these spreadsheets didn't match up on any other service records. And so where, you know, that he also found on that. So like where, where exactly, um, you know, who, where are these guys? Why are they only on this list and they don't exist on any other lists as to where everything I kind of on the terrestrial papers, you know, do seem to match up with what's on earth. Does that mean they're not on earth and that there's ships with very odd names like USS, whatever that, that, that wouldn't be it, but that aren't on earth, but they're actually ships in space. Ooh. So that's the claim. That's what gets interesting about Gary McKinnon's story is that it is a fact that he did hack into military servers. The, the question comes down to the, you know, the, the legitimacy of what he, you know, apparently of, of what he, uh, what he saw. Um, I mean, and like there were transfer orders between these ships that don't exist. Now, some theories, I mean, the theories outside of them being spaceships, you know, as in United States spaceships, the theories that exist outside of that is that, well, McKinnon, you know, maybe it was just some kind of simulation that he caught wind of some war gaming of some kind with, you know, made up ships and made up officers. Like it was all perhaps some kind of, you know, video game that, you know, military video game that he ran across. And, and that's, that's what he was looking at. That's one of the claims. And honestly, that does make a degree of sense because we do know, uh, that, that, you know, the military and other alphabet super organizations, actually, we talked about this on sovereign tech, maybe a year ago, uh, where they have that entire system where they're literally creating an entire virtual reality. 
uh, you know, of, of everything on earth and everybody on earth. And they just keep plugging all of the data, you know, into this, into the simulation that represents, you know, our reality and what they do with that. Well, that's, that's a whole other ballgame. but anyway, so, I mean, so it's entirely possible things like that. We know do, ex- you know, those kind of simulations, uh, would be run and would perhaps would have been done. So maybe that's what it's all about. But I mean, he starts claiming that, oh yeah, you know, Roswell, there was an alien uh, ship crash. I mean, he's more or less saying, yes, there are aliens. They visited the earth. Uh, there's an entire, uh, there's another concept that's actually, uh, kind of kind of pushed it's not him alone but kind of pushed by joseph p farrell which is the idea of breakaway civilizations in that like his his you know farrell's theory goes and it lines up with mckinnon's uh because mckinnon's work gets used a lot by ufoologists right uh is the idea that you know there's there's entire like literal civilizations on other planets in the solar system and maybe even beyond um you know that americans and everybody you know a lot of a lot of different military people they end up working you know going off into space and and doing their own thing um and so that there's this full on secret space program that exists uh and there's whole civilizations up there there's a base on mars there's a base on the moon um uh, now you know part of the reason that these claims come up is because you know, and the idea that like, we've already talked to UFOs and that we're using their technology and all that, all of which fall under McKinnon's, uh, you know, various claims, depending on who he's getting interviewed by, how far he wants to go with those. Um, you know, there, there is some historical precedent, uh, for some of this stuff. In fact, recently, uh, there was the, oh, what was the name of it? I think it was the Chang, the Changi two, the Changi two. It was a, it was a probe sent to the moon by China. Uh, and the, the, if I'm pronouncing the name of it wrong, yeah, it's the, the Changi two orbiter. This is in 2012, you know, you can look it up and there are there, it has pictures. And some people look at these pictures from the Changi two orbiter, from the Chinese orbiter on the moon. And they say that that's a military base. And it does look a little strange, you know, when you look at these shots and, you know, you say, well, come on, wouldn't we have heard, wouldn't there be some kind of documentation somewhere that, you know, wouldn't there be some kind of balance sheet, just something that would possibly hint at the idea that the United States government would have been taking an interest in building uh, a moon base of some kind. Well, guess what? There is. Okay. And I believe I'm, I'm going to wrap it up, you know, as far as my own thoughts on all this, I'm just laying out to you what a lot of these people, uh, you know, describe, I'm not saying I necessarily believe all this, but I'll tell you in a minute or, you know, in a few minutes here. So what you have with, you know, this idea of a moon base is you have project horizon and what this is, this was a concept uh, done back in, in the fifties, 1959, I think, uh, where the U S government was absolutely researching the idea and the importance of having a, a genuine military moon base. Uh, and you can, you can read, you, you know, you can read both of the, both volumes on, you know, where, where they, what they talked about uh, with how, you know, how the moon base moon base would work. Uh, you know, they were going to use a Saturn a class rocket uh, to be able to, you know, to, to get there and, and deliver the payload and everything for it. Uh, at all times, you'd have like 16 astronauts kind of running the whole base, uh, you know, going back and forth. Uh, and, and, you know, then it could kind of grow from there, but you can read both documents on that. They, they are, you know, freely available. Um, and the question becomes is, did they ever actually do anything with project horizon? Uh, Werner von Braun was on, was on the board for this. Uh, you know, it's, it is a real thing. You know, and what happened with it? Did did they decide to go forward, uh, you know, with with Project Horizon at any point? And did the Changi Two orbiter uh, from China did they happen to catch a shot of of this base somehow? 
you know, and maybe does it look fuzzy because the base has some kind of natural camo or not natural, but some kind of built in uh, camouflage, but you know, the orbiter just got a lucky shot raises an interesting point. And, you know, and then that, that kind of bolsters a lot of what McKinnon claims to said, he said he found an entire, you know, entire like kind of Naval space Navy program. And so there, you know, there's this base on the moon and all this different stuff. Um, and now, you know, but then to get into his claim about, uh, you know, well, there's alien technology and we've already talked to aliens and all this stuff. Now, some people say it's like, well, how are you going to prove that one? You know, and, and wouldn't you think, you know, wouldn't there be some kind of project horizon for this idea of, you know, what happens if we encounter aliens? You know, what do we do about that? Wouldn't there be some kind of government thing? Because there seems to be a government answer to just about anything, even if they have no fucking clue what they're talking about. They always write up something. Uh, you know, they're like crazy people that write up all these goddamn stupid white papers, uh, you know, and, and that they, they write up, they do their own versions of that where, OK, well, what if this happens? Okay, we'll do this, you know, and that's why they pay all these think tanks and you have the CFR, you know, and all this different stuff, right? Um, I'm not getting conspiratorial on you because anything I want to lay out to you is either something that has been claimed and documented and at least, you know, is based off of something that actually did happen or it is something that, you know, that was actually written down that you can find within the government's own papers. And that leads us to how does the government handle, say, when an alien, uh, you know, some extraterrestrial you know, they encounter some extraterrestrial force or extraterrestrial entity. Well, come to find out there's a paper about that too. <laughs> and some of the stuff I've mentioned on Sovereign Tech in the past, but I kind of want to, I want to make a full picture here. Uh, there is the Brookings report from the sixties and the, well, particularly 1961, this was brought before Congress and all that. And the Brookings report is well the full name for it proposed studies on the implications of peaceful space activities for human affairs. So this whole report in the sixties is about, so how are we going to do things when we get into space? Like how, how's this all going to go down? What's going to happen? Uh, and there, the more interesting aspects of it, there's a lot of different, different uh, aspects of it, but one of the more interesting ones is when it talks about what happens if you do encounter some kind of extraterrestrial uh, entity. And I, and here's what it says. I'm going to read it for you. OK, quote for this from the Brookings report from a government document, while face to face meetings with it will not occur within the next 20 years, unless its technology is more advanced than ours, qualifying it to visit Earth. Artifacts left at some point in time by these life forms might possibly be discovered through our space activities on the moon, Mars or Venus. Anthropological files contain many examples of societies uh, sure of their place in the universe, which have which have uh, disintegrated when they have had to associate with previously unfamiliar societies espousing different ideas and different life ways. Others that survive such an experience usually did so by paying the price of changes in values and attitudes and behavior. Since intelligent life might be discovered at any time via the radio telescope research uh, presently underway, and since the consequences of such a discovery are presently unpredictable because of our limited knowledge of behavior under even an approximation of, approximation of such dramatic circumstances, two research areas can be recommended. Counting uh, or continuing studies to determine emotional and intellectual understanding and attitudes and successive alterations of them, if any, regarding the possibility and consequences of discovering intelligent extraterrestrial life. Historical and empirical studies of the behavior of peoples and their leaders when confronted with dramatic and unfamiliar events or social pressures. Uh, such studies might help to provide programs for meeting and adjusting to the implications of such a discovery. Okay, they're, what they're touching on is the idea of predictive programming, where you, you know, in entertainment and other cultural narratives, you get people prepped for something really dramatic that you suddenly discovered. Reading on, questions one uh, might wish to answer by such studies would include, how might such information, under what circumstances, be presented to or withheld from the public? 
For what ends? What might the role of the discovering scientists and other decision makers regarding release of the fact of discovery? Uh, I mean, this, this goes on. There, there's, there's tons here. Um, and I, I want to, you know, there, there's a uh, uh, Keith Woodard, uh, you know, kind of did a write or, you know, kind of made it all very succinct and said, uh, the Brookings report did raise the possibility of withholding information, but took no position on its advisability questions. Uh, one might wish to answer by such studies intone the report would include how much uh, such information under what circumstances be presented to or withheld from the public for what ends, what might the role of the discovering scientists and other decision makers regarding release of the fact uh, of discovery. These two sentences comprise the report's entire commentary on the subject of covering up the truth. So in the Brookings report, there is the, would seem to be the precedent again, like the person said, you know, there's no, uh, or like the commentator said, there wasn't like a, a suggestion of what you should do, but there is the idea that, Hey, we might really want, if we ever did encounter aliens, we might really want to cover this shit up. We might not want to tell anybody because it could upend the very foundations of society, you know, civilization and all this. Now, as I've said many times, I hope people didn't say, Oh, this is golden stallion. If you're a new listener, say after last week's show, I hope you didn't go, uh, this guy's nuts. You know, like he believes in, you know, conspiracies and alien conspiracies and all this different stuff. Uh, no, I don't. Um, I, I want to get this out of the way fast. Uh, and it, it, you know, I'm kind of, kind of hinting at what I'll be saying after, but, um, I do not believe for a second that aliens have visited the earth, at least not from very, very far away. Um, I do not, you know, I mean, I, I just don't, I, I, in fact, I think there is very, I totally buy into, uh, the Fermi paradox that while sure alien life must've happened somewhere else in, in the universe, um, where is it? You know, we don't see it. And I think that the conditions that are required for their, you know, for sapient, intelligent life to develop, I think are so extreme and so, you know, crazy and so mathematically improbable. Uh, that I think there's, there are very few habitable, habitable planets in the entire universe. There's very few, uh, or not just habitable. There's probably a lot of habitable planets, but there's very few, very little intelligent life out there. That's where like with the Drake equation, supposedly there's millions and billions of, uh, you know, alien races probably out there. No, I don't think so. Okay. So I'm not, not one of these, you know, conspiracy guys in that way by, by any means. All right. I, I, I have a different tack on that, but you know, for people that look at what Gary McKinnon said, you know, and said that we got this technology, you know, free energy and all this different stuff from, you know, crashed alien landings and all this stuff, you know, and then to say, it's like, well, why would the government cover this stuff up? Uh, well, here's in their own documentation with the Brookings report. Of course they would, you know, or to say, it's like, well, don't you think there would have been some evidence that they were planning a moon base if there's some kind of moon base or if there's some kind of, you know, space program out there? Well, according to Project Horizon, absolutely. Congress was totally listening to the idea of let's build us a moon base and the best quote unquote, the best scientists that we had were on board, you know, as in Werner von Braun. So there's evidence to kind of, there, there's some degree of evidence or some degree of precedent. Now, maybe not evidence is the right word, but there is some precedent that what Gary McKinnon was talking about. If he, you know, if the, the idea is, is that non-terrestrial personnel and equipment and ships was referencing starships that, yeah, there, there is some precedent that that could be a thing. Now there's other cases too. There's um, alternative three. If you want to look into that, that was a kind of a hoax documentary from 1980 that claimed there was a Mars base, a joint Russian and American, you know, Mars base in 1969. Okay. But you know, supposedly it was a setup, but some people say that it was, it wasn't just a setup. It was, uh, 
well, not controlled opposition, but it was, it was, you know, getting that, I forget the term for, for that, <laughs> but that it was kind of a psyop to get people, you know, into throwing off, you know, that perhaps the evidence that did exist for maybe at the time that there was the secret space program going on. Um, so Gary, you know, th- this all makes for a very interesting case is, is that, you know, in fact, it really, it, I think it flies in the face of a lot of the flat, uh, flat earth theorists. You know, I mean, governments were totally on board, you know, with a lot of this stuff. I mean, like the bulk of the conspiracies seem to lay out that it's not it's not that space isn't real or that, you know, the Earth is actually flat and all this stuff. And there are those planets. There aren't actually other planets. Everything is existence is just the Earth, blah, blah, blah. You know, it's not like that, um, but that they are, you know, people have been to space. It's just that a lot of the like, like the messed up pictures on the moons, like, oh, well, this, this picture looks photoshopped or this looks like it was on a stage or was added in or something was, you know, whatever that it wasn't actually that they were faking the moon landing. It's that they were hiding something that they found on the moon. And that's also in the Brookings report that, you know, we might find artifacts of something else out there. So, oh, you know, in this, again, the Brookings report came out before we were heading to the moon. This is 1961 as, you know, compared to the late sixties. So, you know, were they, was the government, was the U S government planning on finding something? Were they expecting it? Cause it's a very interesting conclusion to come to in the Brookings report or, you know, a very interesting, like, like subject to even bring up. So as far as my take on the whole thing, um, you know, is Gary McKinnon, like I said, well, he's mentally ill. So does that, you know, invalidate everything that he's ever said? Is he mentally ill because of, you know, the, the stresses of p- potentially getting thrown in jail for 70 years or however long, you know, by the U S government and blah, blah, blah. I mean, you know, is, is that what made him mentally ill? Maybe, uh, did he find something, you know, I, I'll, I'll lay this out for you. I am open. I think, I think we're missing a lot of history on this planet. Forget about anywhere else in, in space. And I don't think, you know, that I, I'm a huge believer in space travel, you know, and, and I, I think we absolutely should be doing that. I don't think we're ever going to get further than, than our solar system. Um, but there's a lot to do in our solar system. So let's get up there and let's get fucking doing it. Longtime listeners of sovereign tech know that about me. Um, but I think, you know, maybe I, I think there are pages of history that have long been lost. I'm, I'm going to be very broad on this. If you want me to talk about, if you're a new listener, you never heard me talk about this before, feel free to email me and maybe I'll go into it in some depth, uh, you know, in a future sovereign tech, but there are pages of history that have been lost. And perhaps some of those pages of history, and I use that term as an abstract have been found again. And maybe Maybe there are technologies like any time. I mean, this is long before I was, you know, really like researched, looked into some of this stuff or was even, you know, interested in science and all this before. It was that, you know, anytime I heard about a UFO, I'm like, nah, they're it's not aliens. It's probably just like some government secret plane. I don't think the, the idea that there's government secret planes, maybe even space planes, is that odd of an idea. Like you have the uh, the X-24 space plane uh, program that ended the dinosaur is in D-Y. Uh, N-A, right? I mean, all these things are very legitimate. So I could believe that there are space planes and that there might be other different types of things that have been developed over the years um, that, uh, well, hmm, you know, maybe maybe that's what McKinnon was was stumbling upon uh, or that there are black operations of some kind, maybe just on Earth uh, that that he stumbled upon. Or maybe it all just was a video game. Maybe that's the deal. Uh, but I, you know, there's a book. Uh, some of it gets a little wacky. Well, it gets very wacky, but there's some interesting points in it. There's a book called dark mission by uh, Mike Barra and uh, Richard Hoagland, who's famous for the face on Mars, which is 
more or less been debunked, uh, you know, due to new, uh, new orbiter imagery uh, around Mars. But, um, but it's called Dark Mission, The Secret History of NASA. And there's some really interesting stuff on that. And their claim is, is that, yes, you know, we went to the moon. You know, these are full-on conspiracy, you know, you could say nuts if you want to. I don't mean any disrespect to anybody, but I'm just, you know, for the colloquialism. Uh, but their claim is, is that absolutely, you know, humanity went to the moon. But when we went there, we found a bunch of shit and we hit it. You know, like that's why there's that's why there's all these discrepancies in photo in photography. That's why people stopped, you know, mission manned missions to the moon have stopped, blah, blah, blah. You know, all of this. And I'm a little more intrigued by that third option. There's always that third way. Right. And I kind of wonder about that. Um, and, you know, when I'm saying that we're, there's missing missing pages of history. Yes, I am claiming perhaps there were advanced civilizations, human civilizations, not alien whatsoever uh, in the past, you know, that that we just have we no longer have a record of. And where is all their stuff? Where did it all go? Well, maybe it went up. It's fascinating concepts, interesting things to think about. What Gary McKinnon found deserves exploration, consideration, and thought. Maybe it was all just a video game. I'm open to that. You know, I don't think it was aliens. I'll tell you that much. I sure as hell don't think it was aliens. But maybe, maybe it all comes down to just some form of human ingenuity that he stumbled upon. It's fascinating to think about. That's for sure. Anyway... Don't hesitate to go wild looking up Gary McKinnon. I'll be back. Hey, all right, another live read. I'm just going to be a few seconds. You know, if you want to learn about some history stuff, I actually do dramatic performances with my own original music uh, of a lot of real of ancient texts. Uh, I have a couple out there already. I have uh, the, the Dream Stealer of Tutmos IV. Uh, I have um, I'm going to be having the Epic of Gilgamesh coming out very soon. I just I, I've been planning on releasing that for a while, um, but I have the Descent of Ishtar. Uh, and you can grab all these. I want you to go to audioftheancients.xyz. Audioftheancients.xyz. Get your hands on a copy of these great albums. I think they're great. Anyway, let's get back to Sovereign Tech. Whoa, hey, you want to slow down? I don't do slow. I move fast. Okay. Well, so you're French. Everyone in the future speaks French. Wait, wait, wait. The future? From 2099. Permanent Autonomous Zone, Osiris One. You've been there. Oh, this isn't happening. It only thinks it's happening. How do I know you're from Osiris One? LGP fingerprint Omega 74656666. Okay, you're, you're legit. Hey, really, be careful. You drive like you're playing a video game. That is how you programmed me. Game Talk. It is time for Game Talk, where we talk video games and we break away from, well, we'll still have a little bit of fun stuff, but actually there's some very sad stories to talk about during Game Talk. Um, you know, folks, I mean, with what I was just describing with the Gary McKinnon case, I mean, in some ways, you know, I leave it, I want to leave it to you. I don't, I'm not here to tell you what to think, <laughs> you know, I'm here to express what I think. Um, but you know, come to your own conclusions with a lot of that stuff. Uh, you know, it is, I mean, it's amazing. These claims are amazing. And some of the, you know, some parts of these stories are absolutely legit. And even if you just look at those parts, there's a lot of questions to ask that don't have very good answers. Doesn't mean you have to go saying, you know, you don't have to be, uh, uh, you know, uh, Sukulos, you don't have to be George Sukulos, you know, saying aliens or anything, because I sure as hell will never say that. Uh, or at least, yeah, anyway. <laughs> but, uh, but there's questions that 
deserve exploration and answers. So that's all I'm presenting to you here. Uh, but let's get into stuff that isn't uh, questionable at all. Well, it's questionable, but it doesn't have, there aren't any questions. They are fact. Uh, an interesting release this week, No Man's Sky. This is a game that a lot of people are looking forward to, myself included. Uh, it, it finally came out. It had a, it got released on the PS4 earlier in the week, and it officially got released, I believe, yesterday. That would have been August 12th, 2016 for PC. Uh, and this is a game where, you know, it's supposed to be very open world. It's like Minecraft in space with ships, you know, and not in 8-bit. Um, and you're supposed to be able to do whatever you want, go explore, do all this good stuff. Yeah, uh, it's popular amongst people that like believe in simulation theory, simulation theory being that, you know, humanity and our entire existence, uh, you know, certainly isn't a flat earth. It's actually not even real. It's all just a simulation in, in some advanced species computer or something. Right. Uh, and so No Man's Sky often gets, you know, laid out as, OK, yeah, you can do this because in this game, it's so massive, you know, that in, in 100 years, you couldn't even explore 4 percent of the procedurally generated universe um, that that the game creates for itself. Uh, well, I mean, not to address on that, I don't believe, you know, I don't agree with simulation theory for, for very simple reasons, but regardless, um, no man's sky has kind of been a flop. Like it's, it seems to, you know, the reviews I'm hearing, I have not played it yet, but the reviews I'm hearing is that a lot of the stuff seems very rushed, uh, are very basic. You know, the game took years to make. It's a very small team. Hello world. Uh, but apparently it is, you know, a lot of reviewers are not very impressed with what's, uh, what's going on. It's not that exciting of a game. Maybe it's not meant to be exciting. Some people take that tech and I can respect that completely. You know, it's just a different style of game. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I'm not going to be rushing to play this, uh, by, by any means. I, now other things I would be rushing to play are games that have come out uh, that I want to I want to get to. But first off, well, th th this is kind of two part for. OK, the Internet Archive, this this part of the story is great. The Internet Archive, archive.org, the greatest site on the fucking Internet. It absolutely is or on the Web, I should say. The Internet is more than just the Web. Um, the archive.org now is hosting on there. They have emulation where you can play various DOS games and all this different stuff. Now they have 10,000 Amiga games available there. There's a link in the show notes for, uh, for this, for you to go check it out. Oh man, the Amiga. If you don't know about the Amiga 500, which all of which is our sequels to, you know, one of my favorite computers of all time. And my, the first one I ever really remember messing with the Commodore 64, uh, yeah, man, I put links in the appendix where you can read Ars Technica did a great history of the Amiga and you can read all about that. It's just a fascinating subject. Uh, if you want to go knee deep, um, I also put in links for the, uh, for Amiga forever, which is a project to do perfect emulation of the Amiga systems. Uh, you can go to Amiga forever.com. You can also go to C 64 forever. If you want to do the Commodore 64 version of that, um, all of that's in the appendix of the show notes to be able to do it, but you can play 10,000 games right in your web browser at archive.org. Again, link in the show notes for that. Um, admittedly, some of the classics like Wings and some others are not there. And also a lot of those 10,000 games, or at least a good chunk of them, are just like demos. Um, they're not the full-on games. But the King's Quest games are there. I mean, there's a bunch of real beauties that you could get on board with and play uh, that I, I think are just, uh, you know, just wonderful, wonderful games. Um, the Amiga, oh man, Commodore, you know, the Atari computers, the Commodore, you know, computers, Vic 20, all that, the Amiga systems were such brilliance. Uh, in fact, Jay Minor, 
who, if you've never heard of Jay Miner before, that's a history to look into. This guy worked for Atari, you know, and, and worked for Amiga, you know, worked for Commodore and Amiga, all that. And he designed a lot of these great machines that were really the, the, the progenitors to everything you do on computing today. Just, you know, maybe each device kind of did a little something different. Um, and it showed just how important gaming, you know, brought forward a lot of the, uh, you know, a lot of the UI, a lot of the UX that people expect in computers today. And, and the Amiga was certainly a huge part of that. All of Jay Miner's work was a big part of that. Look into him, man, what a story, just a, just a hell of a guy. Uh, brilliant, brilliant. But anyway, so you can play those, but now last week, I believe it was, I told you about how also at archive.org, there were hundreds of issues of Nintendo or at least over a hundred issues of Nintendo power made freely available for you to go read. And they are, and they were beautiful to read. Um, Nintendo has, has requested that they be taken down and archive.org has taken down, um, those issues of Nintendo power. That is no longer possible. Unfortunately, I mean, you're gaining an incredible library from Amiga of games. So, you know, that, that's a great thing, but it is pretty sad that Nintendo, that all of that was taken down. Uh, but it's been a hell of a week for Nintendo with, uh, takedowns. And that's kind of our main thing for game talk this week. Um, they also took down a, uh, a Metroid game. It was a, it was a fan made game, which there's a lot of these for a lot of different classics. Um, but this was a, a remake, a fan remake called AM two R and that stands for another Metroid two remake because there's been a few of them, but this one is beautiful. It's so, so fucking good. AM two R is this gorgeous Metroid two originally of course came out for the game boy. Um, it has never been really re-released. The only way you've been able to play it was through emulation, or maybe if you had the Super Game Boy cartridge for Super Nintendo, and you could add a little color to it or something. Um, it is such a, and it, it's a fun game because it's really like playing the original Metroid, you know, from 87, just with a bunch more levels. It, it is a really well done game. It sold ton along with Tetris. It sold a lot of Game Boys back in the day <laughs> because it was that great of a game. Um, and Nintendo had it taken down like within a couple days after uh it was you know released and so the only way you can get your hands on it right now is through torrenting now nintendo's reasons for both for both takedowns of uh am2r of the metroid 2 remake and of all the nintendo power uh issues is quote the unapproved use of nintendo's intellectual property can weaken our ability to protect and preserve it or to possibly use it for new projects excrement in my opinion uh that that is all horseshit uh reasoning you know yeah they are worried that they're going not they're not going to be able to make as much money off of it they are probably also worried about the fact that uh you know somebody might make a better version of the game i mean it all does done it all does come down to money now with nintendo i think things are a little different anybody willing to lay down money on nintendo isn't going to care what some fanboy does, you know, or what some fan does as far as a remake or as far as releasing Nintendo power, whatever Nintendo comes out with, they will buy. All right. Like I, I just, I don't, I, they, and I, Nintendo knows that. Okay. That they are like, they are absolutely a cult company. And I don't mean that really as an insult. I will happily insult them over being so heinous over their IP. And they've been this way for a long time. In the late nineties, there was the, the start of the emulation scene where people could play Nintendo, you know, NES games and super Nintendo games. Uh, and of course, not just Nintendo, but also Genesis and others on their PCs. Uh, there was the very famous site. I think it was ihor.com or something like that, or ihor.org. It was the International House of ROMs. That's what ihor stands for, I-H-O-R. And ROMs is, you know, that's the the, the, the digital version of the cartridge. Um, you know, they, they took that down in a heartbeat. Uh, I mean, 
you'd think they'd learn by now that they just can't stop these things. But it's such a pity what they're not paying attention to. And it's so sad because what they should really be doing, and I have one more game I want to get to, what they should really be doing is saying, oh, there's a market for this. People want this stuff. They should be hiring the people making these remakes. I mean, because like, like I said, AM2R is a gorgeous fucking game. You know, it's one of the best Metroid games you can play. In my opinion, I've played them all, um, man. So they should be getting on top of it. They should see the market signals for this. And like, it would be huge if they brought on the guy that developed AM2R. I mean, it would be like this major boon to say, oh yeah, you know, we want to bring you in, you know, we, and they could, I just think it's ugly when companies do this. I mean, intellectual property is a nonsense idea in the first place, but it's, it, this, this really left a bad taste in my mouth. And if you wanted to boycott Nintendo, I would totally understand, you know, you wanting to do that. Now there is a solution to, you know, there is a, um, a community, perhaps you could say solution, uh, for the fans, you know, to get around all of this, because all that they generally do is they say, okay, take it down and we won't take you to court. Uh, you know, they don't just like lay out the lawsuits and say, all right, fuck you. You did this, you know, we'll see you in court, buddy. Um, I'm not saying that what they're doing is okay. I, I am not saying that at all. I'm just saying it could be worse, but there's a very simple solution to this. And it's interesting. And the solution is peer to peer. Not what you're thinking though, because some people are already looking for AM2R and perhaps the issues in Nintendo power on torrent sites. The solution comes from a game. And I think they thought this out ahead of time. Uh, maybe I can get these guys on for an interview, but there is a Pokemon game released this week as well. Not Pokemon go, but I'll tell you in my just my own opinion. I, it, it delivers more of what I want out of Pokemon. So I kind of find it to be, you know, it offers more for me than Pokemon go does. So I've been, you know, I've been checking out the crap out of this and it's called Pokemon Uranium. Now I put a link in the show notes to the Twitter account for these guys, because that's where you're going to want to follow them. Uh, because you know, maybe their whole site will get taken down at some point. But what happened is, is actually hours before I started recording this episode of Sovereign Tech, this game, which is a souped up version of Pokemon games as you have you know, known them, uh, and it's really, really good, all the different features they have, and they've like thrown in all the Pokemon. It's, it's so cool. Uh, so today, April, or I'm sorry, August 13th, 2016, they supposedly willfully took it down, uh, you know, by their own, of their own volition, they took down the, the, the developers of um, Pokemon Uranium. They took it down. Now, all week long, they were having server problems. They had to keep changing where the download link was because everywhere that they put it up on, it was, you know, like they were crashing the servers or they were, you know, exceeding their limits that they paid for. And that's a great problem to have. <laughs> you know, I mean, that shows how popular this is and was. Um, but now they have gotten rid of any download links. And they said it wasn't. They have claimed on their Twitter account that it was not because Nintendo came after them. Uh, they claimed that, you know, they, they did it for their own reasons. They're not giving very good reasons at all. Maybe, you know, may, there's a chance that it was just cost prohibitive because it was so popular, um, you know, that people wanted to get on board with it, especially with, you know, with the Pokemon Go craze going on. I mean, you know, a new Pokemon game of any kind coming out, especially for free, that looks good and plays good and has a bunch of new features. Yeah, people want to jump on that, right? <laughs> so, um, but here's the clever thing that they did. And so I kind of wonder if this was some kind of test bed by the entire fan remake community, perhaps they built, they had a built in patcher, uh, uh, system that, you know, that's an XE that you can, and they said they were planning on releasing this, I think for Mac. And maybe they said they were going to do it for Android, that they were going to release it for that. But that was on their Twitter account. You can, you can look into that. But anyway, but there's a pet, there's a built in patcher. 
okay, into the game itself where you can, you know, update the game to different versions, you know, to, to newer versions, you know, 1.01, 1.02 and whatever. Now, granted, that's a little annoying because the, one of the things I love about Nintendo is that when they put out, especially a Pokemon game, holy fucking shit, you know, when Nintendo puts it out, not Niantic, like with Pokemon Go, when Nintendo puts it out, it's done. And any bugs there, you know, just become a part of gaming history. But generally, there aren't any. Or if there are, they are exceptionally few. Um, so, you know, I, I don't like this constant updating thing. But to some degree, you know, for the fan remake aspects of it, I, I get it. So but what they said was, is that they have not stopped, even though they took the game down from their website, they have not stopped development. They have left it to, you're going to have to get it through some kind of peer-to-peer option, you know, torrenting, whatever. Um, and they are going to continually develop the game, but they will just put, give you new developments through the built-in patcher. Now, this is interesting because, you know, what, what, I mean, what, what can Nintendo do about this? Nothing. <laughs> you know, you can hide where it's getting developed. You can say it's getting developed, you know, somewhere where it's out of their reach. And, you know, Nintendo isn't, it, believe me, they're not going to do this. They cannot sue everybody that, you know, was, was crashing the servers or whatever, uh, that, you know, they can't go after everybody that downloaded a copy of this game and good luck trying to put a stop to the torrents. Yeah. You can close down sites, but you know, peer to peer is more than just torrent sites, folks. I think this was damned clever. And I think more fan remakes need to take heed and, 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 you know, do so likewise. Okay. (laughs) Go ye therefore and do likewise. Uh, by, by having these built-in patchers. Now, of course, there is a security concern that, you know, you're downloading something from a server that, you know, might be questionable because you do know who these, you know, developers are, blah, blah, blah. I understand that. I'm putting that out there as a disclaimer. Okay. But if you love the game and I love Pokemon, the uranium version of Pokemon. Uh, yeah, this is great. I'm good. You know, I have a copy of it and I'll be getting, uh, you know, I'll be getting updates all the time. Now, the moral, the main moral of the story here is, is that any time an announcement about these remakes come out, you know, say Polygon talks about them or, you know, whatever website, uh, I don't know, Kotaku or something talks about it. You better go download them quick. Even if you're not going to install them right away or whatever, go download it fast and just hold on to the, you know, hold on to the zip file or the XE or whatever. That way you have it. Okay. (laughs) Because as we're going to get into in our next segment, well, there's a, I hate to use this term, but there's a real war going on against peer-to-peer. I'll be back with more Sovereign Tech. Tonight, Knight Rider, who crashes into your living room. I don't believe this. Well, you'd better believe it. A lone crusader for justice drives this crime crasher. The world's most fantastic car. And together they can do just about anything. After all, we're only human. Don't press your luck. And now, buckle up for action with the fastest show on television, Knight Rider. See Knight Rider online today. And now back to Sovereign Tech. Pixel says it should be this panel. We need to hack into the control center to shut down all of those assassin bots. Well, you're the android. Can't you just jack in? We, oui, but... The way I connect is more like a jack-off. Was that a joke? Ecking is no joke. Hmm. Directly connecting certainly beats doing it with the keyboard. Hmm. You're notorious for your love of cyber sex. Okay, now that was a joke. Just get hacking. A quick hack solves everything. Hack sack. 
It is time for HexSec, where we talk issues of hackers and security. And, oh, you know, boy, I got I, I can recommend it, absolutely. If you can get your hands on Pokemon Uranium version, do so. Uh, you know, it does kind of throw up into question whether or not there will be a Mac version, even though I love that clever, you know, uh, patcher idea. Not that that's, like, new for other software, but I think for, like, for this style of game that is a very new, or, you know, for this uh, uh, genre, I think that that's that's a really clever idea, you know, as far as fan, uh, fan made, you know, IP ridden games. <laughs> but, uh, anyway, you know, I, I said that there's a war going on against sort of peer to peer and really torrenting and file sharing and all of that. Um, yeah, I don't like to use that term, but, uh, you know, I don't, I'm not exactly sure how else to describe it. Uh, I'm going to read to you some headlines from this week. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm just going to read you some headlines. You know, we've talked uh, for a couple weeks now about Artem Wallen, of course, with kick-ass torrents, uh, him getting extradited to the U.S. from Poland and the Poland, uh, you know, the Polish government arresting him. No, no problem. I mean, they, you know, just on the whims of the U.S., unbelievable. Uh, and, you know, things have really been crazy since then. So we already have kick-ass torrents, which is the largest really at the, t- you know, it was the king of the roost. I mean, it, you know, it was the top of the heap as far as torrent sites go. Um, and now it is gone. Um, but I want to read you some other headlines uh, just from this week. Uh, court, or Well, from past maybe week and a half. Court, uploaded.net failed to prevent uh, piracy, faces damages. What that's about is uh, uh, there's uploaded.net, which is kind of like a media fire. Um, it has, you know, according to German courts, they're going to have to they're going to have to start paying stuff out. Um, you know, it, it could end up being in the millions. Uh, that uploaded.net is going to be in trouble. And they're not just for, you know, explicitly file sharing. I mean, or, you know, at least tor- this, that, that's not even torrents. That's more just file sharing in general. Uh, you know, it's more of a media fire, you know, cloud service. Uh, but they're in trouble. Uh, let's see. Next one. Rights Corp threatens every ISP in the United States. And now this is talking about what are they threatening with? Um, because BMG, you know, the music company, uh, they just won a case in the U.S. to get paid damages of $25 million from uh, from Cox Communications. Uh, because because the BMG's claim was is that Cox isn't doing anything. <laughs> Their claim is that Cox is being a bunch of cocks uh, by to them by not doing something about pirated music and whatever else. And the U.S. court said, yes, Cox, you are you know you are totally liable. When really the only cocks here are BMG and uh, and well not not that Cox is a great company, but but BMG and of course you know the U.S. legal system. Um, I mean, it's just crazy. Now, Rights Corp, if you don't know who they are, they are an entire company built around, uh, you know, like they, they make web crawlers and all that, which as far as how viable these things actually are that they lay out, uh, you know, that's, that's up to debate, I think. Uh, but they have web crawlers that are just constantly checking, um, you know, torrent sites for, uh, for, for copyright violation, you know, for copyright violators, um, and I mean, this is this is really crazy. And I, I don't know that Cox is necessarily the good guy in all this. I think this is really Cox is happy to pay out twenty five million if this court case against BMG could really get used uh, to 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 pass the buck, as it were, onto uh, Cox subscribers and, you know, uh, users of their ISP service um, to, to to say, well, look, we have to put in, you know, bandwidth limits. I'm go- we're going to have to charge you for bandwidth because, uh, you know, we're losing out on this 25 million and this will prove that, you know, and they'll think that putting out these bandwidth limits, you know, limitations on price will, uh, you know, will stop uh, pirates perhaps from downloading so many terabytes and pon terabytes of, uh, you know, of data and everything. Uh, just 
you know, every month. So I think that there's, there's really something behind that. But the bottom line is, is that because BMG won against Cox, Rights Corp is, you know, getting saucy now thinking, oh, we can we can start going after the ISPs, you know, and then, uh, you know, even though we have such a hard time going after the actual downloaders and uploaders um, of the content. But even then, you know, there's there's other aspects of this that are getting shut down. Uh, uh, PIPQ, I don't know if that's how you pronounce it, but it's the uh, it's that's the Britain's uh, police intellectual property unit. It's unbelievable that there's an intellectual property unit in any police force. Talk about victimless fucking crimes. And I mean that. Okay. <laughs> wow. Um, anyway, they uh, did a raid and there's not a whole lot of information on this, but, uh, but PIPQ uh, had raided at least a couple uh, pirate TV streaming operations. There was uh, three arrested, uh, three people in- arrested in the case, but these sites, whatever they were, no one's exactly clear what they are, but, but apparently whatever it is has been shut down, but people have been arrested over the streaming, you know, video options of, you know, of, of pirated content or whatever, you know, maybe it's uh, like showing, I know some, some of the case that is known is that they were showing off, um, content from various BBC channels, which generally, as I understand it in Britain, you have to pay a a kind of a tax for, uh, you know, to be able, you have to pay a tax on your TV right alone. Um, so that was, uh, and that's how the BBC is funded, right? Apparently. Um, so, you know, that was getting cracked down. Even streaming sites were getting cracked down. This is all this week. Everything I'm telling you has been in the past seven to 10 days. Uh, the next one, uh, Russia plans social media piracy crackdown. What's that about? Well, there's the, you know, the Facebook of the East called VK. That's VK.com. I don't recommend using it, even though it used to be run by an anarchist, uh, that, that being Pavel Durov. Um, but VK, you know, a popular thing that people do on there is they upload entire songs, you know, co- quote unquote, copyrighted material. Again, folks, I think IP is bullshit. I think, you know, intellectual property is a nonsense idea uh, and it requires a surveillance state to even have. So just on that basis, it's unethical. All right. But, uh, you know, Russia is going to crack down on that now. And is that because of what's happening on VK? Most likely. So that's not even necessarily, uh, you know, a site that is designed for torrenting or streaming. Um, that it's a social media network. It's just like Facebook. Uh, but they're probably going to get the feel the squeeze on that along with many other sites in Russia. Uh, here's another headline. Facebook removes extra torrent page, deletes user profiles and flags links. Extra torrent was one of the, uh, popular, uh, recommendations that I made, you know, aside when kick-ass torrents shut down, people are asking me, where can I go? Well, extra torrents.cc is one of those sites. And now Facebook has completely removed extra torrents presence from Facebook. Who told them to do that? You think Facebook did that? No, there's probably tons of users. You know, a lot of people go to social media to keep uh, abreast of the status. You know, is a torrent site down at this time or are they up? You know, what, what's 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 a new release? Things like this. Uh, so, you know, there's a lot of user engagement there. You think Facebook will want that up there. But obviously, maybe the MPAA or the RIAA or whoever, uh, you know, whatever government said, get rid of this stuff. This is all happening in this week. Here's another headline. Uh, Ninja video uploader. Uh, featured on Interpol's wanted criminals list. So the uploader to, you know, Ninja Video, uh, that's, I mean, you get put on Interpol now just for being an uploader of content, you know, for sharing information. Here's another one. Torrents, it's torrent with a Z at the end. Torrents shuts down. Largest torrent meta search engine says farewell. Torrents was another one was one of those ones that I recommended when Kickass Torrents went down, and it's a meta search engine. They don't even host the magnet links for you to get access to torrents. They just told you you could. They just searched all the different torrent sites, and you can go after it. They shut down, and they've been in operation since 2003. Holy shit! 
So, but they've been totally, I mean, you know, the the MPAA, the Motion Picture Association of America and the RIAA, which is the record version of that, the music industry version of that, um, they have this out of cycle review of notorious markets. Okay. Where, and, and this is like the list. If you're on this list, you must be doing something right. And I mean that seriously, you are doing something right. And and Satan bless you. Okay. (laughs) Uh, you know, Torrance had been on that, you know, many, many times on Notorious Markets. Now, suddenly they shut down after kick-ass Torrance. Um, here's another one. This one's very concerning. Uh, Breen, that's B-R-E-I-N, that's a Dutch anti-piracy group, settles with in court with prolific Usenet uplo- uploader for 15,000 euros. That's a lot of money. Okay, and this that's unique because they went after Usenet, which that was another thing I recommended when Kick-Ass Torrents went down, was run to Usenet. They're not going to go after it. I was wrong. At least, at least uh, you know, in Denmark, you know, or, in, you know, parts of Europe, they are absolutely going after, uh, uh, you know, Usenet uh, uploaders. This is a concern. Uh, here's the next one. Uh, Kick-Ass Torrents. Or, well, anyway, that's, that's all the headlines. That's enough headlines. All of that. All of these site shut, shutdowns, all of these court cases coming to an end and or, or heating up and starting up inside of like 10 days after Kick-Ass Torrance goes down. This is a shitstorm. I, I am, I'm not, I'm not going to sugarcoat it. This is a huge problem. Uh, in fact, another one, uh, Kick-Ass Torrance uh, dot website. That was one of the recommendations uh, that I made for, you know, where you could find a mirror of everything that was on Kick-Ass Torrance. Shut down. And a lot of the other mirrors, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't trust them. Uh, right now, my only recommendation is the Pirate Bay and uh, Demonoid.pw, and I still think Usenet is is worth going after. Uh, again, most of the legality falls around the uploader, not the downloader. If you were just downloading, you know, they're like you're 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 kind of in the okay through various legal loopholes uh, t- today. But if you're an uploader, you know, th- there's there's some issues there. Uh, but this this is crazy, and it is so apropos that. MadeSafe announces their alpha of the safe network this week because that's something good fucking luck trying to get us on there, baby. At least that's my hope. Uh, ZeroNet is out there. There's a lot of alternative technologies coming out there that people need to look into. In fact, even one of the original founders of the Pirate Bay was saying he really wants the Pirate Bay to just shut down, to just end it. it it's over. It's a shell of what it used to be. He said, you know, torrenters file sharing needs to go to the next level. They need to start innovating again and, you know, using services that are far beyond what existed 10 years ago. I don't have a problem with things that existed 10 years ago, but I get the point is that there needs to be, you know, there, there needs to be advancement in file sharing. There's retro share. I'm a huge fan of retro share. Uh, I I've been on board with that for a long, long time. That's a technology that I think needs to be looked at. Okay, so we have, we have the MadeSafe Alpha coming out. So, I mean, we, you know, that's still going to be a little while probably before we're out of, we're into beta and doing a whole lot of stuff and even getting out of beta. And that's fine. Um, you know, there's, there's ZeroNet, which you could, you could try, you know, check out, start using. Um, there's RetroShare, which I think is fully ready, you know, for some kind of file sharing, but you kind of have to create your own little circle, uh, you know, to be able to do that. Um, but man, not not good. And in fact, they're even trying to bring back kick-ass torrents. Uh, Mr. Gooner, who's one of the major site admins there, um, they, they did, were doing a GoFundMe, um, and that GoFundMe disappeared the other day. So, I mean, even the attempts to revive kick-ass torrents, and there's, I put the link in the show notes, there's, uh, there's like the, the community aspect of kick-ass torrents, which was a powerful aspect of it, uh, has been, uh, the forums have been put back up, and that's at uh, cat cr.co that's the web address you can find it for episode 188 of sovereign tech if you want to check that out but i mean it's not good like i mean it's not understand they're not going to stop this thing but like as far as anything that we've relied upon 
you know, as file sharers, as torrenters, as copy meists, if you want to use the old pirate baby, uh, you know, quasi religious term, uh, you know, the, the ways are gone and, and, and some, it's time to embrace some of the new, I mean, you can still use some of the old Usenet IRC to do file sharing. I think those are totally valid and legit things, but everybody's got to start upping their game on how we go about this. And, you know, certainly getting the fuck away, like, uh, you know, away from Apple and Facebook to do it, uh, you know, considering what happened with Artem Wallen, you know, if again, he's the alleged runner, if he was the runner, I mean, these are, I mean, and if he's not the alleged runner, it's it, the, the case is 10 times worse. You know, it's just as bad anyway. Things have got to change. New technologies need to be developed and people need to start buttoning up their suits as it were. Because they're coming after everybody. The reviews are in, and Babylon 5's a winner. The New York Daily News says Babylon 5 could make Star Wars look like a walk in the park. The Chicago Sun-Times calls it a welcome addition to the sci-fi universe. Impressive, perfectly scaled for TV, raves the LA Times. And the Kansas City Star says Babylon 5 is one space station you're likely to want to visit frequently. See for yourself what everyone's talking about on Babylon 5. Babylon 5 is available for download on your favorite torrent site. See it now to experience the greatest show in television history. Babylon 5. Adelaide, why are we stopping? In the future, uh, we have a custom. Uh, what's the custom? After a successful mission, a team usually is love, a menage a trois, or orgy. Yeah, there's there's only two of us. I already contacted the others to come join us. I love women, too. Whoa, Hadley, you're beautiful, but you're an android. I am fully functional. I am programmed in multiple techniques. A broad variety of... Mm. Uh, 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 wow, I, I guess so. Uh, you did say you move fast. Adelaide, the future is going to be so good. It is time for the climax where, woo, baby, <laughs> I can talk about whatever I want to talk about. And you know, I can't leave the show on such a sour note. Um, again, the real message is hope. It's just, we've got to do something. Okay. Anybody that's interested in file sharing and torrenting and all that, you know, in, in that, that whole, you know, file sharing culture and peer to peer culture, we've got to do something. We got to start using these new, you know, these new developments or these developments or go back to the old ones that, uh, that aren't being watched so much or whatever. Okay. It's a call to action if you're interested in that. If you're not, well, don't worry about it. Um, but, <laughs> but I'm not going to leave it on a sour note. And just to make it even more appropriate, uh, more appurtenant, as they say, I want to talk about during the climax here, and we're running long. Uh, I'm sure you know my affiliates already, already figured that out. Um, but I want to talk about a movie that I downloaded that is not out on home video yet. And well, I mean, I had it before it left theaters, but I, you know, I finally got around to checking it out. Uh, and the movie is Warcraft. 
And oh, yes, <laughs> I might have briefly mentioned, you know, kind of how I felt about it and, you know, that it was a little lackluster and all that. And and that's still true. The, the movie was uh, was a little lackluster, came out in May 2016 of this year. Um, and it is based around, of course, the very popular Blizzard Entertainment or Activision, uh, uh, you know, a video game series, which I've been playing forever. Like I, I even played Warcraft one Warcraft two. Oh boy. Warcraft two, as far as hours played might be the game I've spent the most. No SmackDown two probably takes that title, but it's pretty close. <laughs> it's one of the games I've spent the, the most amount of time playing. It is such a fun game, including its uh, expansion pack. Dark portal, uh, was just, uh, you know, just, just awesome. Um, and the movie itself you know, and I, I play, of course I play Warcraft three to death frozen throne that it's one of the greatest games ever made, uh, regardless of platform. It's, it, it should be in people's top 10. It is so good. Uh, I, I even considered it better than Starcraft one. And that's saying something. Um, I played world of Warcraft for a little while as well for a few months. And then I realized, Oh no, 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 no. I don't like where this is taking my life. <laughs> so I So I stopped, uh, fine. If people want to play it, it's, it's a different way of living. It's a different lifestyle you know, do it, whatever. It's just, it's not for me. Um, so I'm a big fan of the entire, uh, you know, the entire franchise. Uh, I read the comics, read the books, uh, you know, all, all of that good stuff. Uh, I, I absolutely love it. Uh, you know, been an integral part of my, uh, you know, of my personal evolution, I guess you could say <laughs> through life, or at least has been a part of, you know, my, my, you know, going through the years. Uh, anyway, so the movie, let's get to it. The movie made by Duncan Jones, who I actually like as a director. Uh, I thought Mo Moon is a phenomenal film. Uh, just just I mean, top notch. If you want a great science fiction film that amazingly all gets done by, you know, really one actor, Sam Rockwell. I mean, there's there's other people, you know, briefly in it, but he carries the whole thing. Uh, that that is the movie to see. Uh, <laughs> I mean, it's got such a great feeling. Very 2001, very Star Trek, the motion picture feel to it. Uh, but uh, but it has some genuine comedy in it and just has a great hook. Uh, it's an awesome movie. So I like Duncan Jones. Of course, he's also the son of the late, great David Bowie. Uh, rest in peace. And, you know, Duncan Jones, I like his style. I like what he can do. Unfortunately, this movie probably isn't going to bode well for his career. Now, should that really matter in the grand scheme of things? No, because, you know. Even Ridley Scott has made some some bombs here and there, uh, you know, or some things at least that I don't enjoy. Uh, but Warcraft, and I'm only going to give you one spoiler alert if you haven't seen it yet, because I recognize it's still not out in in uh, you know in home video in the states. Um, yeah, there there you have it. Because I might break into that. Uh, I thought you know overall, so I can love a movie for you know for being uh, for for style like without substance. I can really enjoy that. And this movie had style in spades. I enjoyed seeing a lot of the different characters and, you know, just seeing Azeroth, uh, you know, in all the, in the orcs and everything, seeing all of that finally come to life was, I mean, and the effects were phenomenal in this. I, I think in the orcs, I thought they looked pretty good. Um, you know, well, I can't picture them looking much better. <laughs> I really can't. Um, I thought all that was just, just fantastic. You know, and it was so cool to really see. And, and I mean, Duncan Jones, to his credit, uh, because he also co-wrote the movie, um, really paid attention to a lot of fan service, a lot of the details from the games, not just World of Warcraft. I mean, there's a lot of Warcraft one, Warcraft two. In fact, this this largely takes place kind of pre Warcraft one leads into Warcraft one a bit, whatever, uh, you know, where you're dealing with uh, the birth of Thrall. That's kind of what the whole movie, you know, really kind of sets up. And Thrall, of course, is the famous enemy slash uh, ally at times, you know, for the Alliance, for the, the human Alliance, um, 
my only, com- you know, I, I think, so I have a couple complaints about this. Uh, first off, they did had Garona, they had Garona in it. Uh, Garona, of course, is the half, half orc, half whatever version of Warcraft you're listening to. Uh, in this case, she was explicitly, I think, half human. Um, and she looked you know, pretty good. They did that obviously to, to have a a sexy female character. I don't think there's any, any debate on that. Uh, but in, you know, in the actual Warcraft canon, she's half Draenei. Um, and that, I, that was one of the things that I missed in this is I love the Draenei, especially in world of Warcraft, uh, where, you know, they're like, it's kind of as the science fiction element where they have starships and they have this crashed, crashed starship and all that. And, you know, on the West side, uh, that, that I think is really cool. Uh, so they really dropped the ball on not having her be half Draenei for one, um, but also for you do see the Draenei briefly, uh, you know, on the orc homeworld on Draenor. Um, but you don't really get the Draenei, you know, with, with their big crystalline hammers and all this stuff you know, and a lot of their high tech, uh, uh, you know, abilities. You, you don't get all that, which I understand why I'm, I'm just saying that I, my my overall concern is that. Not that the presentation was bad. Some of the acting choices, I think, were rough. Some of the, the jokes didn't hit right. But that this sort of proves, because this they started really at the beginning in many ways. You know, they, they start with, you know, the birth of Thrall and how all that, you know, that that backstory. Um, of course, they, they give him a different name, like it was like Ganal or something in it. But anyway, they, it sort of proves why, if the story is to believed that George Lucas had a nine-part series made, for Star Wars. Why did he start in the middle? Because that's where all the action was. It kind of proves him right <laughs> that you do want to start in the middle of the story. And so my own, my main concern with this is that I think this could have been a lot bigger, which granted in in America, in the United States, it did very poorly box office wise, but in China, it did gangbusters. In fact, we'll probably get a sequel. I hope we get a sequel because the movie was, it wasn't great, but it was good enough to where I want to see the other ones kind of like independence day resurgence. Okay. All right. Yeah. I know there's rough spots with this film, but please make that third movie. Please make that next film. I want to see that next film because the next film you're setting up looks amazing. And I think this is true for Warcraft as well. Um, to where the next film getting set up looks amazing. So, yeah, so I think the, the point kind of gets proven is that you want to start with, you know, people just aren't into the origin stories. And I think origin stories might just be very tough to do with cinematic exposition. You know, like, like I think, I mean, you have Batman Begins that it worked there amazingly, but partly it worked there because with Batman, he's so well known, you don't have to be too explicit with, uh, you know, you don't have to do too much exposition with, with the origin story, uh, as to where with things where you're trying to get a bunch of new people, new viewers, new eyeballs on it, whatever. Uh, it's tough when you've got a lot of history to lay out, usually a book or, you know, even a paragraph does better than a movie can. So I think making these origin stories is really questionable in and of itself, unless it's such a well-known property or unless you, you just have like a really, really brilliant writer and director team. And I'm not saying Duncan Jones isn't, but this was his first time with a, you know, a blockbuster and, you know, maybe, maybe it was too much. I mean, no disrespect towards Duncan Jones on that. Maybe it was just too much for him. Um, but overall, I mean, the score was, you know, the music was great. There was really nothing wrong with the film other than sometimes the, you know, the jokes didn't land right. And I would have done, done some different, um, different actor, uh, choices. I did. I didn't like, we didn't get to see more of the rest of the other species of the Alliance. Uh, like you got to see boomsticks, you know, from, uh, from the dwarves, but I would have liked to have seen a lot more of the elves. 
Uh, you briefly see them. You briefly get a little bit of a cleavage shot, too, you know, but I mean, it's all very, very brief. Um, I would have loved to, have, of course, seen, you know, gotten more into the drain eye and all that. I think if they did the story of Warcraft 2 or if they just went on to, uh, uh, you know, the Burning Crusade or whatever, you know, somewhere deeper into World of Warcraft and just brought that to life. I think that would have been uh, that would have been like the place to start. And then you could work your way backwards since you're already so heavily in the CGI aspect with creating the orcs, you know, just work your way backwards then. Uh, because a lot of the, well, spoiler alert, a lot of the characters in Warcraft kind of have to die off, except for, um, uh, you know, Lothar and, uh, uh, oh, and, you know, and Garana and all that, you know, they, they live on, which Garona, or I'm sorry, not Garona, Gar, uh, Garona, uh, Garona, like if they kept her half drain eye and she had the glowing eyes, like that would have been great because then you could have had, you know, other actresses playing her in future, you know, uh, you know, future entries or in previous entries, because, you know, you just you'd have to you'd have the glowing eyes. And I think that could mask a lot of what was going on. But it was just really so cool. It was such a beautiful film visually. And it was so cool to see, like they paid very close attention to the, uh, you know, to the the, the armor of the humans. Uh, Azeroth looked just looked picture perfect, I thought. Uh, there was so much cool stuff to see. So I think it's worth watching. I'm hoping for sequels. It has flaws. Uh, but overall, I'm, I'm shocked. Like, I, I thought it. I thought it was. It was pretty good. But I mean, there's points of it that really suck. Like I, I, I won't deny that. Anyway, I hope you enjoyed this episode of Sovereign Tech. If you want to donate, donate.zog.ninja. That can also get you to the Patreon page to get all those exclusive Patreon episodes, like the big three-hour extravaganza I did about Steam. It. Woo! You want to get on it? Carpe Lucam, everybody. I'll see you on the other side. Yeah, baby. Woohoo! You just experienced Sovereign Tech. Go to SovereignTech.com, that's S-O-V-R-Y-N-Tech.com, and connect with us there. Find links from today's show, and catch our podcast feed. Sovereign Tech is copy heart. Copying art is an act of love, and love is not subject to law. So please, share the show however you like. Welcome to the Evolution. Evolution.